Testing, testing, one, two, three. Check one, two, three, four. Check one, two, three, four. Nice. Yeah, and these um, these microphones are, they're like decent. So you can, um, yeah, feel free to talk louder because like they're not the worst microphones in the world, but they're not the best. Right. So, all right, folks, this is the Punk Rock Barbershop. Black artists talking about their white influences. As always, I am your host, Michael Robertson Reed, and we are coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, also known as Marion Anderson City. And as always, the Punk Rock Barbershop is the most engaging podcast on the internet. It is a podcast that is so unique, it just might be offensive. Complex conversations around a simple topic. That's what we do. All right, so we are here with, um, uh, you know, a very special guest. The joke I always make is that I say every, you know, we have a very special guest. Everyone's a special guest, but you're 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 a special guest. You know, you're you're a, a, a nice, wonderful human being. So nice, wonderful human being. Can you tell us who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is David Dylan Thomas, and it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. I am sure that everyone asked this question, or maybe they don't. Um, so is. Uh, and so I'm assuming that Dylan is your middle name. Yes. Okay. So it's not like a Mark Paul Gosler thing where his name was Mark hyphen Paul. Like you're you're not no, David hyphen Dylan. Yeah. It's you're three David. Individual names. Although to be fair, my legal name that I was born with is David Thomas. I added the Dylan when I was in my 20s because um, a couple of reasons. One, my name isn't particularly Googleable. There are about four or five far more famous David Thomases okay. in the world. Sure. Uh, and secondly, I like, you know, Dylan Thomas, um, and I wanted my initials to be DDT for some reason. So, all right. So you, you have answered one of the questions I was going to ask. Oh, okay. Cause yeah, I, I, cause I was, I'm like, oh, is this like in reference to Dylan Thomas, who's a poet, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, and that's also how Bob Dylan ad adopted his stage name. Cause Bob Dylan's name is like Robert Zimmerman yeah. or something and is a, tribute to Dylan Thomas he started calling himself Bob Dylan that I, I don't think. know but it sounds plausible yeah I think I heard that somewhere this was in the pre-internet era this is when you know the what now the, yeah yeah, <laughs> it, yeah crazy enough I assume we're maybe around the same age I'm 40 how old oh, are oh you? yeah I'm 45 so okay yeah. so right, I, yeah. I remember a world without the internet yes I remember a world with libraries I remember yes. all of that stuff also what's funny about that was um uh there is a branch of the Philly library like up the street from us that's like a when you go up Germantown, it's like a five minute, you know, drive up. And so I went in there because I, you know, I have to be reading like a new book every week and I haven't been, you know, like working like an actual job job for like four months, you know, so the money's a little low. So normally I always go and buy, buy books. I'm like, oh, well, I just, I'm just go to the library and like, you, sure. know, lose, you know, use my library card to take out a a book and I hadn't really been in a library since like 1997 so I kind of didn't know like how things were categorized because they they had a whole um non-fiction section but there weren't labels to say like biographies right. um you know or like sports biographies music biographies uh so I was just sort of like trying to like look at the titles to be like okay what section yeah. am I in and I'm like okay these are entertainment biographies but I don't know if this is all of entertainment or TV or theater actors yeah and yeah and then I was just like I'm like oh yeah like I libraries have their own 
I don't even know if the Dewey Decimal System is a thing anymore. Right. Can I so. tell you a crazy story about the Dewey Decimal System? Absolutely. So this comes from uh, David Weinberger's um, Everything is Miscellaneous, which is this amazing book if you're looking for books to read. Um, uh, so basically the Dewey Decimal System was concocted to help you know organize knowledge in a mm-hmm. library. Um, and we think about that in terms of like, okay, this will have this section, this will have that, you know. But it was also meant to be um, an architectural plan. In other words, um, hmm. one level was supposed to have the like the zero zero ones or whatever. Like those numbers were actually meant to denote floors of a building. Interesting. And it was modeled on the current thinking about what were the highest levels of knowledge. And I think like philosophy or whatever was on the top floor, and other sciences were like on the lower floors, whatever. But it was literally meant to be a physical. Um, map of knowledge. So when you walked into any library in the world, you can know exactly what book was where just by knowing what floor you were on. Ah. Um, which I think is sort of like yeah, that's brilliant cool. and interesting. Yeah. And But it was really, you know, like talk about information architecture. It was literal architecture. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, That's very cool. I See, I wish you had told me this on <laughs> Friday morning so then that way, you know, I would know that like, yeah, if uh, I'm on the first floor of the Lovett branch of the Philadelphia Free <laughs> Library, I'm supposed to find a book of Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. I don't know, there weren't any Charlie Chaplin. I, I don't think there's there. a single library in the world that still follows that. Sure, but. sure. <laughs> if I find one, I'll be like, you you are, you know, you you are following the, you know, the creator's plan. Yeah. Um. Okay, so birth name originally David Thomas. You add the Dylan mm-hmm. for Dylan Thomas. And then you were you also a fan of WWF wrestling? Is that why you wanted the DDT? Because that was Jake the Snake no, Roberts. I was just thinking about move. the the poison, <laughs> like DDT. It sounded badass because I was in my twenties and I wasn't thinking about oh this actually hurt people. It was just sure. like oh DDT sounds cool. So uh, so yeah, and it's funny because I think about it as as we're talking about this, I'm realizing oh wait that's my first you know, in this podcast reference to a white influence. Yes. Dylan yeah, Thomas. Dylan Thomas. Not, not, not a black man. Not, not, not a black man at all. Um, also, what I love about that is that I don't think I knew that DDT was a poison. I'm just like, oh, oh no. Really? Oh, the, yeah. DDT yeah. was a pesticide that was later found to be like super toxic gotcha. and, and destructive. And uh, there's a whole rabbit hole. I won't go down that. But like, look up Radiolab DDT. There's a great episode about how like it's actually the chemical composition is fine. But because one like molecule was slightly off like the whole thing became hey, poisonous yeah <laughs> so there was no reason to believe at the outset it was going to be as bad sure, as it was sure. but yeah but yeah, that we, was we did not know yeah yeah i i was a huge wrestling fan ah, as a kid okay. and jake the snake roberts the ddt was his finishing move oh okay yeah where he would like sort of put you in a backwards headlock and then he would like kind of fall back and drive your head oh. into the mat yeah it was yeah. it was a cool move i'm assuming it was Named after the the pesticide, sure. yeah, because I'm it's I imagine you know like probably the tagline was like the most lethal finishing move in in all of, yeah. of wrestling. Did you watch any WWF wrestling as no, a kid? I I don't know. I I never really got into that. It just I mean, it, and again, you know, no disrespect, but to me, it felt kind of cheesy and almost like. I don't know, subversive maybe. Like I, I just it was it like it felt like it wasn't for me. Gotcha. That um, makes sense. I mean, it's it's a male soap opera. Yeah, you know? like yeah. that's what it is. Um, but it's sort of like, I don't know. And I don't, I can't point to any particular thing. Cause like the masculinity I was into at the time wasn't mm-hmm. far off. Right. Like I watched Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Sure. Right. So that sort of super juiced up, like, yeah. you know, thing wasn't all that, you know, I think the closest I ever got to enjoying that was if you ever remember, remember the movie they live. 
I never actually saw okay. it, but I've heard it. Ref- is that the one with Rowdy, 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 Rowdy Piper? Piper? Yeah, and he's the he's he's the main character, right? And, and it's and a, it's like they're alien. Is it the ones where and you have to wear the the, the crazy sunglasses yeah, so to see the these, aliens? Yeah, and it's a sort of like you know. Reaganomics, like you know, paranoia thing, <laughs> which is weirdly relevant today. Sure, right? sure. If you watch yeah. They Live Now, it's just like he saw it coming. But, um, but yeah, there's a scene where um, uh, Keith David um, is uh, sort of you know the buddy cop in this buddy cop movie, and he's and trying so to when you get... say Keith David, we're talking about the like gravelly voice. Yeah, Keith, yeah, Keith, yeah. Okay, the awesome. Thing, like all that good yeah. stuff. Um, and uh, he has to get Roddy Roddy Piper to put the glasses on, right? <laughs> And there's this whole like five minute fight scene in an alleyway between Keith David and Roddy Roddy Piper, and it's like it's like a wrestling match. It just oh, keeps that's going great. and I going. It. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I think at some point I may have to like watch every movie that involved wrestlers. So yeah, so there would be They Live with Roddy Roddy Piper. Yeah. There was Predator. Oh yeah, Predator. Jesse Ventura. That's right, Jesse Ventura. Which I uh, I won't go into super deep. Uh, sidetrack on this Predator was the first rated R movie that I ever saw oh, so yeah? I was I was in fourth grade when it came out on video and my friend Parker Paul whose parents kind of let him do anything at least in comparison to my parents sure. like my parents were always like the strictest um, uh, out of all of my friends but I went to a Christian elementary school so like I even remember watching Tron at Michael Gower's sleepover party in third grade and his mom tried to fast forward over a part where like someone said, damn it. And she <laughs> she missed it. And the guy's like, oh, damn it. And she's like, oh, sorry, guys. And so so that's the kind of environment I grew nice. up in. Anyways, this kid Parker, he rent, his mom rented Predator mm-hmm. for him. And we were like fourth or fifth grade. So I was kind of like freaking out. I'm, I'm like, his mom lets him watch rated R movies. One of our friends whose name was actually Thor, his name was Thor Johnson. And I didn't uh-huh. realize because I didn't know who Thor was at the sure. time. Um so he like went in Parker's bedroom and just like stayed there the whole time the movie was on because like he didn't feel comfortable watching a rated mm. R movie. But yeah, that was the that was the first time I saw Predator. So yeah, yeah. so Predator has Jesse the Body Ventura. They live has Rowdy, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, um, Randy Montreman Savage has a cameo in the first Spider Man movie with Tobey Maguire. Yep. See, I I only saw Spider Man two. Was that the one with Doc Ock? Doc Ock is Spider-Man 2, yeah. Okay, and then I saw a little bit of Spider-Man 3. I I'm saw so it on, sorry. like, FX. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to see Topher Grace doing... Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. he was Venom, right? Yeah, 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 and then Thomas Hayden Church was, like, Sandman? Yeah, yeah. I don't cast, really know comic The cast was well. flawless, but okay. the, the execution was, was lacking. Did Sam Raimi direct the third yes. one? And he just didn't do a good yeah, job? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's, it's too bad, too, because he did a great job with one and two. I highly yeah. recommend going back and watching the first one. Okay. But, um, but yeah, the third one, and my, my understanding is, like, there was a lot of fighting with the studio. Gotcha. That kind of story, but, yeah. Okay, so Randy Macho Man Savage had a cameo in the first yep. one. Now, did you ever see, I think, what was it? Over the top with Hulk Hogan. Oh, that's right. And, There's a whole oeuvre of, yeah. of Hulk Hogan. You got yeah. that. You got Universal, not, not Universal Soldier, like Suburban Commando. That's yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew yeah. what you Hulk, were talking about. Hulk is the guy who really just went all out with the yes. movies. <laughs> I think I watched Suburban Commando. My best friend from California, Bill Sloyer, who was kind of into wrestling, but we were all into Hulk Hogan. I think we yeah. watched it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to... Th- um, what other... Yeah, I'm sure there are more. Yeah, I don't know. Um, all right, so let let's get into your your life story, and then we can, you know, we can, we can go deep down the Sam Raimi Spider Man <laughs> rabbit hole. 
I'm, I'm also going to confess I haven't seen any of the Army of Darkness film. Oh. Did, he directed those, right? Yeah, Sam yeah, Raimi. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you do nothing else, just sit down one day and watch Army of Darkness. It's okay, so fun. I, yeah, ev- everyone, everyone uh, is you know who's my brother. So my oldest brother, who is into Doctor Who, mm-hmm. I have two brothers. The middle brother is really just into like action movie. Like as far as movies, like I mean, I'm maybe he watches the Star Trek movies. He's not like a sci-fi dude at all. But my mm-hmm. oldest brother is he's how I learned about Doctor Who. He was the first person who ever referenced like Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and then. Um, the because i guess uh, was army of darkness the third evil yeah. dead movie so, yeah. so evil i read evil yeah. dead to army of darkness gotcha so i remember i think when i was in sixth grade was when army of darkness came out and i went with probably my best friend at the time bill sloyer because we hung out together all the time i feel like we went to go see a movie and then we saw a trailer for army of darkness and it was so unlike anything i had ever <laughs> seen before so I and I'm like, this looks totally stupid. Like what this like buff guy is like fighting zombies or something. I don't really remember what happened, but I was telling my oldest brother Gene about it. And then he goes, oh, he's like, there's a whole it's a part of the Evil Dead movie series. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, OK, but I just never. Yeah, I never I never watched it. Um, all right. So let's let's get into your your backstory. So so tell the good people. Um, well, first off. We had kind of an, an interesting way of how we met. So tell the the, the listening public from your perspective okay. how we how we met. I'm I'm curious to see if it matches up with oh, like, sure, you know, sure. what yeah, I remember. Good. And you know, this was only like two months ago, maybe, or like two and a half months. It wasn't yeah. that long ago. Yeah, a few months ago. So I am a content strategist. I work for a company called Think Company. And um I also help organize uh, Content Strategy Philly, which is just what it sounds like, right? A bunch of people get together and talk about content strategy once a month. We have different speakers. So we had uh, Malaika Carpenter, this awesome speaker, come out a few months ago. We were in one of the Think Company like offices. And at the beginning of every session, we do this thing called Who's Hiring, Who's Looking? And so during the Who, and it's basically like who's looking for a job and who's hiring, and people just stand up and say, hey, I'm Bob, I do this. So uh, Michael stands up and just talks about like he's looking for work and he mentions that he has this podcast. And when I hear the premise of this podcast, I'm like, mental note, talk to this guy afterwards because that is the coolest idea for a podcast ever. So that that and then I walked up to you afterwards yeah. and we started chatting. But that, that that's my version. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah. That's that's essentially it. Yeah. I was uh, what I was mainly hoping was when I went up there and um I was completely comfortable just talking about how, like, I was looking for work. Um, And I think I had mentioned this when I went up there, how, like, for the last 11 years, I've, like, worked in the nonprofit field. And I was thinking, like, okay, well, maybe I would want to work in digital content creation. You know, very broad term, because I have this podcast, which... I want to monetize and make the dream like, you know, like to monetize. This is the dream mm-hmm. that could take several years to happen sure. or it could happen next week. Like, I don't know, but it's like, yeah, I got, I got to find a paying gig uh, up until then. So it's like, oh, well, maybe digital content creation would be a thing that I would enjoy because it seems like it would most closely align with what I'm doing with the podcast. So that's what was in my mind. But anytime like I'm in those forums, like talking about looking for work is not something that I feel self-conscious about. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and, and I, and I feel like I sort of explain the backstory about like, Oh yeah, you know, uh, you know, I have this podcast because since I, 
this is the only digital content I've ever created. Right. And I, I had a blog like four years ago or something. I always get really nervous when people, because uh, I've, I've gone to like a couple of like tech conferences and, and meetups and people, you know, are like, oh, you know, like, you know, we're looking for the like, you know, the SK7 coder. And I'm just <laughs> like, so I don't actually know anything about air quotes, digital content creation, right. because like, this is just a thing I'm trying to pursue and I could be completely unqualified. So as I was explaining all of that, I just, in my head, I was like, can anyone follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Do I look like a complete moron? Are people <laughs> in the audience thinking like, what is this jerk like doing here? Like, and then when, um, and really like the only reason that I mentioned the podcast was to sort of explain like, here's how I've wound up at wanting to like, thinking of pursuing this as as a possible vocation, even though I don't have any experience. And then um, when whoever asked it, like, oh, like, what's the podcast about? I was sort of like, well, I, I want to, like, answer the question, but I don't want to look like a dude who just, like, came here just to, like, plug his podcast. Right, right, right. So I was like, g -g 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 -g. so... Yeah, so I was just trying to see if, you know, you you were like, yeah, this, this jerk went up and was incoherently <laughs> babbling. Something about... Not working in nonprofits anymore, and he has a podcast that he's like, you know, he's trying to like, you know, force feed down everyone's throat, and now yeah. he expects us to pay him like seventy thousand dollars a year when he's an unqualified <laughs> man child. Yeah, see, the funny thing about that is like, you look at that as a as a bug. I look at that as a feature, right? Because that thing was the you know, like at that moment the most interesting thing about you, right? It was the thing that sure. made you stand out from anyone else who was yeah. saying, "I'm looking for a job. I have 15 years running experience." Blah blah blah, right? Like you saying that made people remember you, yeah. even if it wasn't for the thing you're trying mm -hmm. to make work for. Yeah. That's almost incidental. Like the key, the key, like step one is. Do you remember me? Right. So that when I walk up to you, you have some kind of familiarity effect yeah. versus wait, who's this guy? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And it and it was funny because, um, you know, talking to you and having you come on the, you know, you're now on the podcast now, and there were like, you know, there's a couple of things that you'd mentioned during our in our intro chat then. Um, where I'm like, okay, like aside from the podcast, these are some things like, you know, I'm definitely going to want to talk to him about, you know, just to see like what can happen. But then there was another gentleman there who we're going to see if we can sort of like do some kind of like cross pollination work together. So yeah, it was, it was, it was super interesting how like I was really just there to like get one step closer to getting a paying job. Like sure. the, the benefits for the podcast were like really like the last thing on my mind and yeah you know as with many things in life it's like you go to do a and then you end up doing oh, Z. that, that so. yeah that is life like yeah. that's literally how life works everyone yeah. thinks it's like this step-by-step -step plan and you do thing linearly and it's like no anything nothing could be further from the truth yeah so yeah i'm i'm learning to just em em embrace that yeah um so i feel like when when you came up to me um do you write films or like like you do you produce and direct films i, I feel like you mentioned that all, but i could be making that up but i yeah, feel like i'm not above. Um, okay so i've been making movies ever since i was in high school awesome and you know in one version or another i've only ever actually gotten paid to make movies sure. in a few times in my life but um but whenever i can is probably the most uh, accurate way to say it nice um so yeah so from high school up until you know now i'm still working on films making films features web series digital video actual film like I've worked I'm at the right age where when I started it was a mix of doing VHS videotape mm -hmm. and then actual physical film to the the 
tech evolved the whole time. So how you make film has changed radically yeah. in my lifetime, and I've tried most of it mm, that's <laughs> by awesome. now. Yeah. <laughs> so in a perfect world, would you want to be a filmmaker or a creator of, yeah, you know, films, web series, or do you like your life the way it is now where you know, you, you have your job with Think Company mm -hmm. and then you do film in addition to that like like what's what's the dream as far sure. as your your artistic creation and how much of a part of your vocation that yeah. takes up so i would say that like my professional work is the part of the like it's gotten to a point where it's the part of my of the skill set the, the the things i enjoy doing that is the most marketable, right? So sure. content strategy, going out and giving talks in a way that supports my company. Yeah. Um, I think that I would never stop doing, um, like I literally mapped out a 40-hour week for myself mm -hmm. where I counted for every hour and like what would I like to be doing. Yeah. Um, and it came out to something like 50% like straight up making movies, feature-length yeah. movies, television shows, like just making media, um, writing and directing, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, I hate producing. Um, and then the other half of the time would be just going out and giving talks, writing books, like that kind of like stuff. Cause I've come to really, really enjoy that yeah. as well. Um, and is that what you do at think company? Increasingly. Like, yeah. Okay. So, like what, what's your official title? Sure. There? So, so my official title is principal content strategy mm -hmm. and that's been evolving over the, I've had the job, the title for a year or two now, it's been kind of evolving as to what that means, but it's usually some version or another of kind of architecting the practice of content strategy at think company. Uh, internally and trying to figure out, you know, how much do we, you know, charge for a content audit and blah, blah, right. blah, like stuff like that. Um, and then at the same time, externally kind of, you know, evangelizing the work, um, going out and giving talks, mm -hmm. you know, uh, on topics that, you know, are, you know, content strategy adjacent, but are sort of like adding my own interests around cognitive bias. Yeah. So I do a lot of talking about, um, and the, the book I'm working on is also kind of in this vein around the intersection between design and, con and cognitive bias. Um, so all of that is, you know, thankfully helpful to think as much as it is helpful to me. Yeah. So <laughs> I've increasingly, that's been increasingly a part of my work as well as to sort of, you know, you know, uh, generate interest in the mm -hmm. company by going out and giving these talks. And that could look like potential lead generation, but it could mm -hmm. also look like recruiting. I've had yeah. people who came up and told me that like they, the part of the reason they were interested in working at Think is because they saw me give, saw me give a talk yeah. one time. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how my work has been evolving. Gotcha. And so is the book that you're working on now, is this like the first book you've done, the 10th, the third? Oh, this is the first book I've ever done. Okay. Um, and I can't go into too much detail about it sure. yet. It's still kind of early days. But uh, but yeah, it's the first time I've ever written a book. Although technically, I feel like I've been writing it for about three years now because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. based on a lot of talks I've been giving yeah. in the past three yeah. years. Uh, so it's kind of flowed out of me, to be honest. Um, but it's the first time I've ever tried to express those thoughts in book form. Sure. And... Just in terms of like the branding and the revenue about it, is mm -hmm. is it a oh th this is a completely um, independent David Dylan Thomas thing, or is it like Think Company is doing this and you're the conduit, or mm -hmm. is it like you know? So if when when the money comes in, mm -hmm. is it like the royalty? Do you get like half and they get half? You get a hundred? Mm -hmm. It's ninety ten? Like how much? of a relationship with your yeah. company I, is it yeah i can't go into too much detail about okay. that but 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 the bottom line is that they're uh, affording me some time to work on this because they know that okay. it's a good thing right. if one of uh, a thing if a thinker we call ourselves sure. thinkers, if a thinker um is out there with this book you know promoting it that it's a pretty 
pretty easy math from that to, oh, we have our name out there in a more national level. This could easily, more easily generate leads. This could more easily uh, generate recruiting opportunities. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a, there's a mutual interest there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. But it's it's not necessarily like an official. It is not like, the, yeah, Think Company is not publishing the book in that right, sense. Right, right. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm just curious, like, how, how did you... Like, did someone approach you about, like, I just, I think it's, I'm sort of like, oh, no, and I, like, I, like, like, if you were, if how we do were people having... who aren't, you know, if you're not Ernest Hemingway yeah. or like Michelle Obama, cause it's like, well, I know how they get their thoughts on yeah. the books, but with everyone else, I'm like, how did that happen? So I can be, and again, if we were having this conversation like six months from now, it could be much less cagey about yeah, it cause yeah. it's still, you know. Some yeah, things, and some things are still embargoed, but ab- absolutely. Um, but in a, speaking in very broad brushstrokes, someone sure. did approach me after I'd given this talk um, and was at, and basically asked me if I was interested in um, writing about the topic. Oh, that's cool. Um, and that's so that's you know from a like how if you are not Ernest Hemingway, I th- a lot of it is um, becoming associated with an idea and being mm-hmm. able to articulate that idea. Yeah. So I think you know if I had to do the math, I'd say the po- I do a podcast about cognitive bias that I've been right. doing for like three years now. Um, so that started to affirm my name as someone who's interested mm-hmm. in that topic. Yeah. And then I've also been giving this talk about design and cognitive bias for just about the same amount of time. So again, it starts to brand me and I, you know, I hate the term personal brand, but yeah, but, <laughs> but it's, that's thing. kind of what it is yeah. in terms of like, oh, you know, if you're thinking about it, I like to think about things like, you know, publishing or whatever, like how do people get these opportunities? I like to think of them in terms of, well, what problem are you solving Mm -hmm. for the people who would be giving you the opportunity? And you have to remember, like, so if it's a publisher or if it's like someone who's running a conference, right? I, um, I consult sometimes and, you know, mentor people around trying to get, become speakers and get their talks in conferences. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I always have to remind people uh, this is advice, actually, I got from my uh, friend Kevin, who's been doing this even longer than I have. But um, remember, when you apply for a conference, you are solving a problem yeah. for them. They mm-hmm. need to program this conference, right? Mm-hmm. They need to make it worth the audience's time to come. And if the audience goes and the content sucks, they're not going to come back. Right. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So if you have great content, you are solving a problem for them, and you have to pitch yourself as solving a problem right. for them. And the easier you can make it, to see for them to see you as oh here's the solution to our problem the more likely you are to get into that conference mm-hmm. and that's things like making sure your title and your you know synopsis aligns with what they've described as the problem they're trying to solve because right. when they right. give you those submission rules and they say this is what this year the this year's conference theme is or whatever or these are the kinds of talks we're looking for they are telling you how to solve their problem like mm-hmm. they're telling you they're mm-hmm. describing their problem to you yeah absolutely so, describe the solution right so i think i think that helps too is to rather think of it like this you know walled city where it's Mm -hmm. like oh how can i possibly get in it's like no the city needs food the city needs water how can you supply those things Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah absolutely no i love that yeah and i um one of the things i find well there's many things i find fascinating about that one is that um i've done a fair amount of just research just in terms of like professional development, personal development, how to make yourself more marketable, really how to make yourself financially viable in the economy. Um, And everything that I've read, listened to, um, absorbed is really, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really that philosophy of position yourself as the solution to a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, or a pain point, you know, Mm -hmm. and like the whole idea of the great philosophy behind a business is find a need and fill it. You know, it's like, you know, people need affordable 
uh, uh, fancy clothes for like toddlers or whatever. Like I, you know, wh- wh- whatever the stuff is, you know, mm-hmm. and and not, you know, clearly not thinking about it in terms of like, how can I get myself in front of a lot of people and how can people pay me lots of money or, you know, just give me a lot of accolades for mm-hmm. the stuff that I talk about. It's like, no, like your, your focus should be on like, what, wh- what are the problems or the pain points that you are actually looking to solve for people or like, you know, or present yeah. them with like, oh, like these things that are causing legitimate concerns in your personal life and your romantic life and your professional life, da, 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 da. I've been researching them for years and thought deeply and, you know, collated this information. So I'm really just, I'm working to provide valuable content Mm -hmm. for you, which, yeah, you know, I just think is super uh, important. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, I wish that more people in the world, you know, um, could sort of like think through that lens. Because I see this a lot in like the nonprofit world Mm. where people have sometimes this thinking of like, oh, well, I'm doing good work. And so the work should speak for itself and I should get paid a lot of money because I'm doing good work. And it's just like, no, I mean, like, I understand why you think that way, but like, do people actually understand the effectiveness of what you're doing? Do people have a cellular understanding of because of the way that we do things at this particular company and the ideas that we've generated and the work that we've done, this thing that was a huge problem is now not as big a problem or it's gone away. Mm -hmm. And so we're not trying to like con you into buying something, but what we are saying is that if you care about X, Mm -hmm. we actually have a proven method to take care of X. So please consider hiring us to take care of X. So I like that you're doing that. Yeah, and I think that it's, I mean, it is an altruistic, at least on the surface, an altruistic approach to business, right? It's rather than saying, it's all about me, me, me. I'm going to talk about myself and how awesome I am. Instead, it's like, no, tell me more about yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like, what Absolutely. is it you need? And let me think about, is there anything I can do to help you with your need? Now, yeah. I say altruistic because, like, fundamentally, you know, a, a, a tenet of altruism is, I'm going to put you before me. Right. Right. Uh, in point of fact, like, I don't know what your motivations are. You may be doing that just because you're trying to make money. Sure. Right? Like, I, sure. I'm, I'm not going to, like blanket capitalism with this altruistic veneer right but i am going to say that that approach versus the approach of self-aggrandizement mm-hmm. is a more altruistic one Absolutely. at least at least in um in appearance so but I, but i but that's part of what i like about it right yeah. like that's part of why i gravitate towards it is it's like you know okay um have you ever heard of the phrase jobs to be done no so there's a methodology um we follow it at think lots of design firms like that's it's it's a fairly you know past few years um notion of how to think about user experience and it's this idea of um a trivia question uh how often like once a drill you know a drill you buy at like home depot once you buy it what's the average amount of time it ever gets used you know uh in in uh in the re- for the rest of its life uh, like once every three years it's it's about 10 minutes yeah all the drills you know in america bought 10 minutes is about the amount of time like once they've actually been purchased like that like that's the cumulative like yes, if you add if you up, add the, up like, all the, the all the times zzz, anyone ever actually seconds. turns it on yeah versus how much time it just spends on the shelf sure 10 minutes 10 minutes um, and theoretically you're gonna like own this drill for like years possibly oh, yeah. decades yes yeah. um so you know and the reason being i didn't want the drill i wanted the hole right once i had yeah. the hole, didn't need the drill you anymore, don't need the drill right? anymore this is why yeah. tool libraries exist by yeah. the way um See, and that's a great, yeah, like, because there's just so much stuff where it's like, I don't, like, if there was a a machine, like, on every street corner that just, like, dispensed 
batteries. <laughs> that would be the greatest thing ever. So, you know, I've got all these smoke detectors and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, you know, first time owning a home. So I didn't really think about like, oh, I got to change the smoke detectors like every six months or three months or what. Like, I don't even know when. But uh, one of them just started beeping in the middle of the night. And the way that these are synced up, you know, it's a good thing if one beeps, they all beep so that oh, like, you, yeah. you know, that there's yeah, yeah, a problem yeah. in the basement or whatever. So, of course, it happened at like three in the morning. Sure. It kept me up. I drove to a Rite Aid in Roxborough, just bought like a bunch of batteries and like none of them work. So then I literally two months ago bought like one hundred and ten dollars worth of yeah. batteries. <laughs> and, you know, I I did. I was pretty determined, like, I'm going to put these all in one drawer and I know where they are, but like anytime I go through anything in this house, it's like, oh yeah, there's those like eight billion light bulbs mm -hmm. that I bought four years ago. Like I'm gonna need light bulbs and I yeah. can never find them. Yeah. yeah. So if yeah, so renting tools, yeah, like I we I think someone gave us or like we bought like a whole like drill set with like every type. You never know when you're gonna need the blah 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 drill. And it's like yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know where it is. I don't think we yeah. ever used it. So yeah, that's my rant about like being able to rent tools is oh, yeah. Could that well, will do more for humanity than uh, <laughs> fixing climate change? Not really, but I'm well. Being no, goofy doing that will help fix climate change. Yeah, no, but, the, yeah. but the um, but yeah, that's the whole thing, right? It's like I need the th I, I, the thing you were hiring that drill to do, or you're hiring that you know battery to do, is to make the sound stop or to mm -hmm. have the hole, right? And so that approach of saying, you know, rather than try to think about my audience in terms of demographic or this or that, it's like, well, what are they hiring my content yeah. to do, right? And how do I pitch? my content in mm -hmm. terms of that it's like oh you've got a problem with x okay let's talk about that yeah versus hey look how awesome my content is right. and hope that what i'm saying resonates with some need you have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i love it i love it um so uh, my other question before we get into the your origin story is so when you're making films um like so like what's the stuff that you're doing like are you mm -hmm. is it kind of are you like Martin Scorsese where like he does everything where it's like I'm gonna make a kid's film I'm gonna make a period piece I'm gonna make a you know a film about Sri Lankan mobsters and then I'm gonna make a film about you know Sri Lankan uh, I don't know cheese manufacturers like I feel because people try to peg Scorsese Scorsese as oh you're you're the Italian mafia guy and it's yeah. like that's actually really I mean Goodfellas Kind it's of about a quarter of his work. It's a quarter of his work, but like people forget, it's like, well, he did Cape Fear, he did oh, yeah. Age of There's Innocence. There's three quarters that's all over the place. Yeah, right? yeah. He like, did, you know, Silence, which is unlike any movie that anyone else yeah. made that year. Like, yeah. it's, yeah, no, he's, 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 yes. As um, opposed so, to Tarantino, who were like literally all, all of his films are crazy revenge flicks that like focus on like a certain demographic. Like Django is for black people and then Inglorious Bastards is the like Jewish revenge flick and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the like I don't know. Uh, actually that, that I, one's idealistic. Uh yeah. Yeah, I mean actors. he I mean he's he's sort of like more, you know, mining um uh, uh sort of uh 70s grindcore kind of like yeah, these different you know, subgenres. But absolutely. In in any case, um I'm 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 kind of all over the map, but that has more to do with uh resources than interests. So I have a list of maybe 160 films that I want to make at some okay. point in my life, um, which is never going to happen unless you know the singularity happens. But sure. Um, but I'm going to make as many of these as I can. And if you look at them in terms of genre, most of them, my home base is action, okay, uh, sci-fi. That's kind of where I live <clears throat> as a, as a as a creator. But in terms of what I've been able to make, that's just sort of like okay, what do I what do I have on hand? Right. And that's varied from drama to comedy to action comedy, like to documentary. That's all over the place. So I am prolific in terms of, um, or agnostic, I guess, in terms of genre, 
but that mostly has to do with well, I really only have the resources to make a comedy right now, so I want to sure. make a comedy. Yeah. I really only have the resources to make a documentary right now, so I want to make a documentary. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like I'll make what's. It's very MacGyvery. I'll make what's at hand. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I dig because I feel like there is a, uh, you know, um, that there is a bit of the this film movement. You know, like they call it like the micro budgets or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh yeah, well you can if you just want to make, uh, you know, what some people derisively called mumblecore where it's just like you know two people sitting at a table talking about their lives it's like you can use your iphone or whatever and it can actually look like pretty decent you know and then there's a whole sort of school of thought um so i don't know how deep into the like super talky films you are Mm -hmm. like like richard linklater or like um people like joe swanberg or the duplus brothers like i mean do you have any idea yeah, who those I, people um, are? Oh yeah, totally. And it's interesting. So even though my I gravitate towards action, mm-hmm. what I what I really gravitate toward is performance. So there are some movies that I shouldn't like but love. So you take a look at like Lost in Translation, mm-hmm. so Sofia Coppola's yeah. works, or or um, uh, Once, right? Which mm-hmm. are these very you know qu- by comparison quiet films yes. where not a lot happens right. per se, but they're super engaging. They're visually engaging. The characters are engaging. So I'm like, that's really what I gravitate towards is like, or Linklater. I love yeah. the Before nice. series. Mm-hmm. Before some, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's amazing. I love uh, Dazed and Confused. I actually am a big big Linklater fan. Um, I just want to say I'm very happy. I feel like you're the only person I've ever met in my life who wasn't a stoned 14-year-old that said I love Dazed and Confused. <laughs> I mean, that's still one of my well, favorite movies. And I, I, I think that it's a underappreciated film because you can watch it as a stoned 16 year old not <laughs> saying that i was doing that when i watched it but you know we, we should I, be legalized that's that's all I, i'm saying but then like also as a i mean i feel like i watched it a couple of years ago and i'm i'm like it's 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 a really quite enjoyable engaging film about you know dumb narcissistic 17 year olds who think that like signing a pledge not to smoke pot is like enough a violation of their sovereignty as humans, but it's like, yeah, I felt the same way yeah. when I was 17. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I feel like people kind of lose their mind over the before films and boyhood, which, you know, I, I feel like I've only seen before sunrise. Um, just cause I didn't have a chance to see the other ones, but like, I, I liked boyhood, you know, I have it on DVD, but I feel like, you know, people kind of like, are like slacker was the greatest movie ever. Cause there was nothing, anything like it. Dazed and Confused was his commercial stoner film. And then he became a real adult adult and made the before series mm-hmm. and boyhood. And I'm like, I still like Dazed and Confused. So I'm oh, yeah. I'm just happy to say yeah, that that you're you're not crapping on it. Oh no, no. I mean, like to do a little origin story, right? So Dazed and Confused came out when I was just out of college. And uh Towson Town Cinema, just up the road from um Charles Village, you know, uh where I uh where I was at, at college. I was at, and I was at this is in Maryland for, in for Maryland, people yeah. who, who aren't familiar um, with that part of the country. No, let them Google it. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so all Baltimore, right? Um, and uh, it was a midnight movie, right? Every Saturday night, we'd go up to Towson and we'd watch Dazed and Confused. Yeah. And we saw it over and over. And it became like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Awesome. There were ceremonies. There were things you would do at the moment when the kid says scatter, you would all run around <laughs> the theater, right? <laughs> And here's what happened, right? So back to the 16-year-old stoners. I can't say I never watched it stoned. I'm not 100% sure. but Which um, means you probably watched it Which means it I stoned. probably watched it stoned. But, um, but it got to the point where 
they would only show it with all the lights on. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> but yeah, like it's that that to me is when I think of Days to Confuse it. It's this it's this movie that can be like a cultural touchstone, mm-hmm. right, in a way that other movies cannot. Yeah. It's, that's actually a remarkably difficult thing to do. And you yes. can't actually plan that. No, no, you can't. <laughs> you know? No, you can't. And I I think what's also what I like about the film, particularly with the music, and I didn't notice this at the time, and then I, you know, I read some interviews with Linklater afterwards, where he said he was really conscious to not play the big songs that everyone associates yeah. with the '70s. Like he didn't want it to be Led Zeppelin. Yeah. He didn't want it to be Dream On by Aerosmith, um, because like a lot of those bands. So I, I watched that movie. It had been out on VHS in between my junior and senior year of high school. So this is 90... So, like, yeah, the summer of 1995. Mm -hmm. I was just getting into listening to rock music then. Um, Like, I I used to listen to They Might Be Giants in in middle school, but for me, like, They Might Be Giants were just, like, a band of two crazy people. Like, I never even thought about it as rock music. Mm -hmm. Um... And I had I had listened to a little bit of Queen, like a little bit, because my best friend in high school had he had like the Queen's greatest hits, and when he would drive me home from football practice, that's what we would listen to. So when I was I bought both Dazed and Confused soundtracks, mm-hmm. and I played them over and oh, yeah. over and over and soundtrack. over again. Yeah. Fantastic! And so I knew about Led Zeppelin, I knew about the Who, and I had sort of listened to some of their stuff, but you know. I'm listening to the bands on the Days and Confused soundtrack. So it's like, oh, Black Oak, Arkansas and the Edgar Winter group. And and I didn't even know that ZZ Top made m- music in the 70s because yeah. I knew them. <laughs> I knew them as the guys that did legs and and had exactly electronic MTV, drums. MTV yeah. MTV with the long beards and yeah. the spinning guitars. I'm like, I'm like, oh, they made like kind of country music. Yeah, I had no idea. So and then what was funny was that then in high school, like senior year of high school, when I'd be hanging out with friends and I, you know, and we'd go to like a thrift store or whatever to buy records. And like my my one friend who's also named Mike, um, who was kind of a, a musical purist slash snob in, in high school, he was all about anything that was related to the Who or like, you know, si- sure. the, the, the 60s mod going into arena rock. So Kinks, Who, Beatles, that's what yeah, he lived yeah. for. And so I'd see like a Charlie Daniels record or like Black Oak, Arkansas or, you know, whatever one of the other bands. That was on there. Yeah, like Fog Hat. So sure. hearing Slow Ride, I'm like, oh, Fog Hat is the best band ever. So like I'd be buying <laughs> Fog Hat records and my friend would be like, why are you this is stupid like redneck music? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Fog Hat, you know. And and he was someone who was like real, real, real like anti weed back then. Uh, okay. Um and he used to refer to people that smoked weed as dirt heads. Mm-hmm. So, so I was going to be like, oh, no, I heard about Foghat from Dazed and Confused. Because I'm like, oh, no, he's going to completely make fun of me. <laughs> but I say all that to say that since the Dazed and Confused soundtrack was really like my introduction to classic rock, mm-hmm. I, I was just like, oh, yeah, isn't everyone listening to Foghat and Seals and Croft? <laughs> right. and, uh, you thought and that was the norm. <laughs> I thought that was the norm. And, and they're like, no, we only listen to Led Zeppelin and yeah. like... Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. So, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so that's an interesting case too, though, right? Like, so 
basically one black dude in all of Dazed and Confused. Yes. But that is not who I identified with. Yeah, no, saw me neither. Movie, right? Not at all. Nor is it especially who you're meant to identify with. Yeah. It's like I, you know, identified more with, you know, Pink or with, mm-hmm. you know, even Matthew McConaughey's character right. before I identified with. And to be fair, there's not a lot to identify with. Sure. He's just kind of the black dude. Yeah. But, I mean, that, but that is sort of like, when we start to think about like white influences, that's what I like think about is these movies that really moved me generally didn't have a lot of black mm-hmm. presence. In Same them. with me. Same with me. All right, so so I wanna I wanna make sure um, I'm hitting all of the relevant points. So so you aspirationally, if money were no object, and you you know you you could command a film studio, you would be making action movies. Yeah, like that. For, like the, that's, for the most part. for the there's most other, part. There's some other movies I definitely want to make, but most of them would skew towards action. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, but it, since you you can't just make a billion dollars or. 600 bitcoins i I don't know the dollar to bitcoin (laughs) conversion rate um so so you work with the resources that you have and so sometimes you end up making more of the yeah you know what i call just like the talkie like two people at a chair or like it it, it, it really could be and there's there's a degree of you make movies based on what you've got like the robert Rodriguez school of like i've got a school bus i've got mm -hmm. a guitar i'm gonna make mariachi right yeah and and Um, which is what the the duplass brothers are saying to people now about like literally find a way to make a film this weekend that costs you three dollars yeah so if your friend owns a coffee shop go in there at midnight and film there but if you don't find a way to make it in your living room or a backyard or yeah like you know someone has a school bus film it in the school bus i mean if you're you know stay with link later for a second tape that's a hotel room right yeah like you've got a hotel room you can make tape Mm -hmm. um quick question did you see slacker yes did you like, because I saw it when I was 16 and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, was, I don't know what is going on. It was fine. Like, I prefer his other work. Sure. I mean, it's good. And it's sort of a good demonstration of that principle. But in terms of like, you know, narr- like, I actually kind of like waking life better. Gotcha. <laughs> which is kind of like slacker with dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's, it's fine. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's more like, you know, my first sort of real film film. Um was a movie called The Least Dangerous Game. And the constraints were um, there was a new film club starting at school. And, you know, just for irony, uh, I graduated Hopkins uh, in 95. In 96, they added a film major. Um, And what did you study at Hopkins? Oh, uh, writing seminars. I actually went there. It's a little more origin story. I went there for electrical engineering because that's what Hopkins, one of the things Hopkins is known for. Um, And my plan was... Um, hey, I want to be a filmmaker. Hey, I know most people who go to Hollywood starve, so I'm going to become an electrical engineer and work at like Disney or something sure. so I'm not starving while yeah. I break into the film industry. I found out after a couple of years that I sucked at electrical engineering. Sure. Okay. Um, it's good to know I was, kind I was, of early in. Yeah, I was good at math, but engineering is like applied calculus, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is a whole other kettle of fish. So, um, so, But I had enough electives going where I could transition in my junior year to writing seminars, which is essentially creative writing. Um, and still graduate in four years. So uh, my minor was in theater and film because they had intro to playwriting, intro to screenwriting, advanced screenwriting, got some great learnings there, um, and TV production. I was able to take those classes. Uh, but by the time I graduated, there was still no actual film major. It was the next year they added gotcha, that. So gotcha. there's a little irony. But the bright side was I still knew everybody in that department, mm-hmm. and so I had access to all this equipment. So I was able to edit my first film yeah. on a Steinbeck in the basement of you know one of the, one of the halls. Um, anyway, so my first film, there was this film club forming after I had graduated and their basic premise is, okay, we have enough resources for if somebody wants to make a silent film, we don't have sound equipment, sure. 
But if you want to make a silent film on like, you know, black and white film or something like that, that is really short, Mm -hmm. um, we can probably help with that. And I'm like, okay, let me think about that. What ideas do I have? And I heard about a game from my friend. It was called Assassin. And the basic idea is you uh, get a name. Um, and you have to find that person on campus, campus and quote-unquote assassinate them you know, with a water gun sure, or yeah. a rubber band, whatever your weapon of choice is. And um, I thought, okay, this could be a really great premise for a tight little action film. Mm, mm-hmm. And it, it's a very visual premise, so I don't have to worry about dialogue. Right. So I was able to put together a script um, and shoot it um, for relatively, I still have to raise a lot of money, but relatively little money. Um, and shoot it basically in a week and then edit it. And it's on it's online now if you like look up the least dangerous game on YouTube. It's this this short film nice. about the game Assassin. But that's sort of an example of I've got these constraints, mm-hmm. um, I've got access to this, 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 and this. What can I make that's sort of in that uh realm? <clears throat> and that's generally if you look at all the different movies I've made, they've just been stuff that I'm interested in that fits into those kinds of constraints. Nice. Okay. I so like it. Sometimes it involves talking, but usually it's more like something a little more inventive than that which is sure. usually making it hard like another example I did a movie called Director's Commentary okay and the whole premise is that it's the director's commentary for a film that doesn't exist and the story is actually playing out over the audio of the commentary and all these dramas are revealing mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. all these conflicts mm-hmm. and then a pizza gets delivered like it's this sort of mm-hmm. drama comedy thing so the actual work, right? The actual you know, storytelling uh, is really in the script and the recording of the audio. Yeah. What's on screen almost doesn't matter. Right. And so I'm able to just go around. Um, uh, I just went around Philly and just shot stuff with some of the act with some actors, mm-hmm, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. cut it together yeah. into a semi coherent right. film. And then it's part of it is just the improvisation of the actors recording the commentary, yeah, quote unquote, yeah. reacting to what they're saying. Right. 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 But that that would be an example. Yeah. Of uh, I don't have a lot of resources, right? But I, um, but it's, but it's not. It's, it's a very, it's a very light lift to yeah. just go around Philly and shoot a bunch of stuff. And then the real work is in getting into a studio and recording audio against that. Right. So it's stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. I dig it. I dig it. Yeah. Because I mean, so one of the reasons why I'm asking is, um, I, I don't think that I mentioned this when we chatted briefly when we met, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. Is that? So I. I originally, when I came to Philly for college, I originally wanted to be a film director. Mm -hmm. Like, because Pulp Fiction came out, I think, my junior year in high school. So I was like, I want to be the next Tarantino. Like, that was the dream. And then senior year is when I saw Clerks and Dazed and Confused and Slacker. And then there was a blockbuster video across the street from my house. So, like, I would go and kind of rent everything. So, yeah, like, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of perfect, you know. And it was around when... Um, at least I was hearing about Robert Rod- Rodriguez, mm-hmm. and so like yeah, the that kind of indie film world was you know coming to my radar. So when I was originally looking at schools, I was looking at film schools. All the film schools that I looked at, you needed to have some type of um, visual arts portfolio, which mm-hmm. I just didn't have. I didn't even take yeah. art classes in in high school. So my mom said, "Oh well, you've been really you've been pretty successful at like doing plays in school." Um, so like, why don't you look at the acting program? So then, so that's when I started looking at acting programs. I got accepted when I started, when I, you know, and U arts is essentially a conservatory. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't really seen any plays. So like, I didn't know who like David Mamet was Mm -hmm. or any of these people. And then, so then I really like sort of like dove into the world of learning about theater 
and I actually started my own theater company because mm-hmm. I I was still interested in generating my own stuff, and I was like, well, I don't want to move to California because like I actually like living in Philly, and I mm-hmm. like working with my friends. So I was like, well, I'll just I'll make plays because it's like I know theater, and I can just go around the corner to the Marian Anderson Rec Center and put the plays up there as opposed to like. Because, yeah, I mean, this is, what, 2002, and so I'm reading stories about, like, this film was only made for $30,000. I'm like, I don't even own $1,000. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. thirty. how do you do that? But anyways, uh, so fast forward to, like, 2017 when, you know, I'm hearing about, yeah, people like Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers, who it's like, they made this film for $3,000, and I got into Sundance, you know, and, um, yeah, Sean Baker made Tangerine and he recorded it with an iPhone and like it's you can find it on Netflix now. So I I started thinking like, oh, yeah, like I I originally wanted to do film back in the day. Um, And so the part of what I've been trying to do now is like I've written maybe like seven short film scripts like they're all five minutes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of my dreams before I die is I want to film one tiny film at least and submit yeah. it to a film festival. Yeah. Whatever happens, I don't care. But yeah, yeah. go to my grave to be like, I did it, but I'm struggling with the like, okay, I'm just going to assume I can only film this stuff like in my house or at the park around the corner. So I don't want it just to be like people sitting at a table talking because like that's kind of boring, but like I don't know what else to do. So part of the reason why I'm asking you these questions yeah. is I'm, you know, like I'm I'm trying to steal your intellectual property. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to get ideas of like, Oh, yeah, like a director's commentary thing like that's kind of that's like a cool idea. Like it, it kind of reminds me. This is just where my mind goes. It reminds me of the the opening scene in Airplane when you just you see you, I'm assuming you yeah, saw yeah. Airplane. Yeah. When it's like the cars are pulling up to like to drop people off and the and the husband and wife who are like, you know, the parking. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. red zone is for loading and unloading. Yeah, there's the whole drama. She's like, the, I know what this yeah. is. You want me to have an abortion. <laughs> so I'm so like my mind yeah, just like went to like. Bit. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about like, oh, yeah, like, you know, there's like a whole just yeah. like argument like they're well, they're doing commentary for like, yeah, like a, a, a slapstick comedy. Yeah. And, and, and it's like. I know you slept with my brother or like whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all about creativity, right? Like that's the thing people like you talk about, you know, uh, um, Desperado or Clerks or, you know, Duplass Brothers or whatever. Any of these things and or, or Tangerine's a great example, right? Shot on an iPhone. And people focus on the shot on an iPhone bit, but, but they're not like recognizing is it is an extremely well-made film. Yeah. Like... Shooting it on an iPhone is simply what you have on hand. Right. If you shot the exact same movie with great cameras, we'd still be talking about how good a film mm-hmm. it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like that's the core, right? Is the like the creativity that goes into it, the 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 expression that goes into it. Like here's someone who had something to say, right? And the tools they had to say it was okay. They had an iPhone and they were able to sort of craft it in a way where it made sense. Yeah. And for me, and I don't want to like give the impression that I'm purely starting with the constraints and then coming up with the idea. More often than not, like I said, I have like 160, say, list is still growing, ideas for movies for TV shows. Yeah. What I do is I look at that list and I say, okay, that can only be made for $100 million. Right. That could be made for $10 million. That I could probably make, make this weekend if I really put my mind to it. You mm, know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's really where it is. It's that yeah. I have a shit ton of ideas yeah. and it's a matter of just which ones are really popping. So another example, um, my producing partner, Maurice Gaston and I made a web series called developing Philly a few years ago. And when I made that, I had just actually finished the, um, director's commentary film 
and it you know crickets like nobody cared yeah um and i had two or three different ideas that i was sort of talking to people about and what I noticed was whenever I would talk about Developing Philly is a web series about the rise, the rise of the Philly tech scene, okay. right? And whenever I would bring this up, and this is like 2012 when I was sort of like talking about four or five different ideas mm-hmm. I had in my head, that was the one when I would mention it, people's eyes would light up mm-hmm. and they would say, you have to make that, yeah. you have yeah. to make that. Once that happens four or five times, you start to zero in and say, okay, well, that is something that has like the will of the people. That right. is something yeah. that has some momentum that will probably be easier to make because it has momentum mm-hmm. than any of these other ideas, right? And so that's what we chose to focus on. And it's like a couple of years, but we, you know, it's online now. It's, I think season one is like 12 episodes long. We're still kind of trying to figure out season two. But, sure. but season one's out there now. I think it was like, yeah, 12 episodes, seven, I don't even remember anymore. Um, seven episodes, yeah. Seven episodes, like 12 minutes each. That's what 12 is, 12 minutes each. Um, and we're really proud of that work. But um, but again, if you think about constraints, right? We shot it on nights and weekends. The quality of film had come to the point where you could get a DSLR, which could look like film, mm, right? Because mm-hmm. back in my day, digital video meant it had to look kind of grainy and crappy, right, so right. that better be appropriate to the theme. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. you know, um, like Blair Witch, like Blair Witch works because right. it's supposed Absolutely. to look like shit. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but now you had cameras that could really make things look like Errol Morris. Holy mm-hmm. shit! Look how good mm-hmm. this, like yeah. this frame yeah. is, right? And we could really have a visual language around that. Um, and then in terms of like expense, the most expensive thing we bought for that was a really nice computer for um, for editing. Yeah. Right. But everything else, I mean, the camera was cheaper than the computer. Right. Um, but it was still a really good camera. Um, so we were able to do all of this stuff, make it look really good. And then in terms of like, you know, other costs, it's just time, right? We need to schedule the interview. We need to go shoot the interview. We need to edit the interview. Like the editing is the biggest time suck of that entire thing. Yeah. Um, so again, in terms of constraints, um, we were able to like fit into those constraints. But the passion came first, right? This was a story we yeah. really wanted yeah. to tell. And it happened to be of the 50 stories we wanted to tell, that was the one we could make then. Right. And gotcha. that was the one that people really seemed to, yeah. to, to react and resonate with. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was it was well-received. I don't really have a metric for success of it. Like, I could see how many, like, views it got on Vimeo or sure, whatever. right. But I consider it a success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, all right. So we're definitely going to go into the origin story now. Um, oh, I guess not now because I'm about to say something. Uh, so, uh, just if if you can remember, re- remind me to tell you something about a, a Manchurian Candidate film idea that I have that I just I just want to like hear your thoughts on. Got it. Okay. Manchurian Candidate later. Yes. Um. All right. So so let's do your origin story. Tell people like yeah where you grew up and kind of mm-hmm. how how you became. How did you become the person that uh, that you are today? A uh, good question. So I was born in Columbia, Maryland. Um, I was born out of wedlock, which at the time was a very big deal. And it's funny to say that in 2019, it's sort of like, yeah, so what? But at, right, the time, yeah. they, at the time, they called those illegitimate children. Yes, yes, what a, they what did. What a charming phrase yeah. that is. Um, but so my mom was in the picture. My dad was not. Um, and there's a whole long, complicated sure. story there. But suffice it to say, um, it sort of, you know, meant that I grew up and I bring this up specifically because of the the topic of the podcast, looking to sort of like white heroes in cinema for father mm-hmm. figures. So you're Martin Riggs, you're Harrison Ford, okay. you're, you're James Bond, right? Like that's sort of like where a lot of the, the formative how to be a man, right, mm-hmm. stuff was. Um, and not, is, now is that because you just were like, okay, well, my father's not around and so like movies and TV are on and that's what I'm going to? or Or was there... Or was there like an intentional, like someone saying like, I don't know, like, 
Yeah, I mean, what, was it happenstance or or was there a sort of conscious? You should absorb white figures. Oh, as I think figures. it's. I think it was what was available. Right? Yeah, it's sort okay. of like if there had been if the predominant you know, masculine figure in action films in the 80s was black men, then it right. would have been black men. Sure. It's yeah. like, but that's what was on HBO. That's yeah. what was at the blockbuster. That was what was showing right. in okay. theaters, right? That's what um, I thought, you know, because I mean, it's pure yeah. availability. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, sort of started to cement itself in my head. So grew up, you know, I would say lower middle class, you know, we actually had to leave Columbia because it got too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I spent most of my childhood living in Lockhearn, Maryland, which is basically Baltimore County with my mother, my grandmother, and my uh, older sister. Um, and uh, so that, and that was a time of, you know, great creativity for me. I liked to write. I came up with my first movie idea in my teens. I wrote mm-hmm. it. I didn't know how to write a screenplay, so I literally wrote it, wrote it as a novella. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Like I an 80-page novella. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I was sort of very creative. And I think for me, a lot of my creativity came out of that, um, that isolation. Because in school, I was very, very smart. I did like third and fourth grade in the same year. Mm. Um uh, but I was also bullied. Like I was also on the outside. I was the black nerd. I talked like this. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. a lot of the black kids at school talked like, you know, um, what they used to call eubonics, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, they talked black, right? Mm-hmm. And they would ask me, like, why do you talk like a white sure. guy? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't realize I was talking like a white guy, but okay. And so I was ostracized. I was bullied. And by the time I got to, this was a prominently black school all the way up until like fifth grade. For sixth grade, I went to a Catholic school, which is predominantly white. Still got bullied, mm-hmm. and but what what happened was, and I still remember this. Um, we had these vocabulary assignments where we would have to take all the different uh, vocabulary words and put them into a story to show that we knew how to use yeah. the words. And so people would write pretty bland stories, like going to the store or whatever. I wrote a story about like these astronauts who go to some planet and they find dinosaurs there. Mm, right? mm-hmm. and yeah, people were wrapped. Like they they were listening to me tell the story, and I noticed, hey, everyone's paying attention to me, and nobody's bullying me. Yeah. So like creativity became a straight up survival instinct, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like I need to do more of this. Mm-hmm. Like this is how I can get control. Um, and so I kept doing that. I would write stories. I would tell those stories. Um, I remember like a seventh grade camping trip where like I told this like story and everybody was sort of like rapt attention. Mm, so, oh my God, mm-hmm. this is so cool. And I just kept doing that. And by the time I got to um, senior year of high school, so sixth grade was at this Catholic school, seventh grade all the way through graduation, I went to Friends School of Baltimore, which is okay. a fantastic school, super creative, much less bullying. <laughs> um, and I'm assuming it's run by Quakers. Yeah. So it's yeah. part of the whole Quaker Friends School network. Yeah. Still predominantly white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Uh, still oh, not a yeah. ton of friends, and interestingly, you know, <laughs> not a ton of friends at the the friends <laughs> school. Yeah, I, and that's you know, yeah. I, I that, to me that kind of goes two ways. I think if I had like been less afraid, I could have made more friends. Sure. But at the same time, I, there was you know, I don't there, not everyone was was friendly. It was a mm-hmm. clicky kind of school. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, I also that was also the time when I started. Um, uh, creatively uh, doing more with music. So in seventh grade, I learned how to play the saxophone. Um, by the eighth grade, I was starting to write my own songs, and like I had a two two different rock bands throughout high school. Nice. Um, and again, I don't think we say played a single like song by a black musician the entire yeah. time until we were doing songs that I wrote. Sure. <laughs> so, and we can we can have a whole other podcast probably about like my white musical influences. Oh yeah, no, but, yeah. I mean, and also like in a lot of these interviews that I've done, um, I'm realizing it's like oh, like I actually kind of want to do like I may have to do like. 
second and third episodes with yeah. people because a, a lot of the people that I interview and you know I knew this going in and it's one of the things I'm still trying to figure out like okay so what percentage of all of this stuff like what what's the right mix mm-hmm. kind of default broadly generalizing but with so many people we get so deep in just to like the their feelings about their life growing up or like the politics about like you know being a black kid in white suburbia or even being the like the black nerd and like the west side of Chicago where it's like everyone's black but like you're the only black person who's like playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever so we spend like two hours and 15 minutes talking just about that and our feelings about it and then it's like oh yeah we should probably talk about your influences and then it's like (laughs) I like Van Halen so because even I was I was literally talking to someone last night who introduced me to one of the people I interviewed last week and she's like oh I listened to your interview with Jen and da, da, da. and she's like I don't remember her talking about her influences I'm like we kind of only talked about that for 20 minutes at the very end we went like so deep into talking <laughs> yeah, yeah, about yeah. our lives so yeah so we we can definitely have you again yeah like today can maybe just be like film influences <laughs> and then yeah and then we'll do a whole thing you know yeah I don't know maybe like you were playing like punk rock versions of Barry Manilow songs I, I, I did a punk rock version of Eleanor Rigby that's cool. It, it I dig that. really well. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe. So, um, so I, I have just have a couple of questions sure, sure. to kind of wrap my mind around it. So when you were in Baltimore County, mm-hmm. was it like a mostly black suburb or like a 50-50 or like did it change over like when you were in sixth grade, it was like 90% white and then by like eighth grade, it was 90% oh, no. black. I mean, like what was the, what was the vibe there? Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know the economics, but essentially Columbia got too expensive. We moved to Baltimore County and sort of like, I would say a lower, lower middle class mm-hmm. suburb. Yeah. Black suburb, which is sort of a, a vibe that um, if you're black, you may know well, like it's a suburb, right? Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're in the ghetto, right? but it's also not like rich. Or yes, bougie, or bougie by any stretch Absolutely. of the imagination. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and- where, where we lived in California, there were like liquor stores around the corner from our house that, like, I was told not to go to because, mm-hmm. like, they were kind of dangerous. And, like, um, I mean, this is—it's a sad thing, obviously. Um, what I'm about to say, my oldest brother his dad owned a liquor store like in our town which was a suburb populated with a lot of white collar professionals like his Mm -hmm. dad was held up and robbed and like killed like in a you know in a liquor store robbery and yeah i mean like like there was a drug house on the same on my block i didn't know what it was because i was in sixth grade but like there was a guy who was like whacked out on either like yeah pcp or crack who used to like just walk up and down the street literally 16 hours a day um yeah so a lot of black suburbs have a lot of the challenges that black cities have. And people think like, you're from the suburbs, so you're rich and you had a butler yeah. and you had no cares <laughs> in the world. It's like, not really. Yeah. The opportu- I feel like, at least for me, there was an abundance of opportunity. There wasn't necessarily like an abundance of money. Like that kind of varied because, you know, my dad worked in corporate finance. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I went to private school most of my life but it's like well I went to private school and both of my brothers went to colleges so like we had a very tiny house in order to pay for that not like some of my friends who's like had like these 2300 square foot houses and like heated pools yeah and like only one of their parents worked and they could afford all of that and they went to Europe for vacation it's like no no like we we were yeah like lower middle class like Again, not struggling, but also like, yeah, no, the uh, 
I wasn't chauffeured in a limousine yeah. everywhere. And like, yeah, no, like there there are gangs in my hometown. So yeah. Yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't violent. Right. Right. It wasn't that. Although we do suspect that the family across the street was dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. We have no idea if that's sure. true. But not out of their home. Right. <laughs> there were no customers coming up right. to the actual steps. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't bougie, right? There was no swimming pools. There was none of that stuff. And uh, it was a sort of situation where my mother kept me very sheltered, mm-hmm. right? Kept yeah. me in the home. She didn't really yeah. like me having friends in the neighborhood. And in retrospect, she was probably looking out for me, looking at the kinds of speeches. And I have like an 11-year-old now, so I've already started to have to have these conversations. The sort of speeches that black parents have to give their kids, yeah. right? So she may have been protecting me from cops, mm-hmm. right? She mm-hmm. used to work in the justice system, yeah. so she knew. Um, and I don't think she had a ton of faith in the public school system, and she knew I was being bullied. And so I think that was part of the reason she made sure and made financial sacrifices to make sure that I was in private schools. Yeah, same with me. Among other things, Mm -hmm. is expensive. (laughs) Yeah. It's among the most expensive. Um, So I think think a lot of that was at play there. But that's the kind of environment it was. Um, And I didn't really live in the city until I went to college. And to be fair, like... Even that, you talk about struggling. Like it was the kind of uh, it was the kind of existence where you were always on the brink, right? So if the car broke down, okay, it might not get fixed for a while because right. we don't have the money to fix it, and we have to find alternative solutions, right? Um, I am very familiar with layaway. Mm-hmm. I, li- mm-hmm. I, I like to use that as sort of like a metric for yeah. Like, what do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are your ex- do you know what layaway is? Like, <laughs> I, want, I feel like that should be a barometer for right. things, you know? <laughs> like making financial decisions for the country. Do you know what layaway is? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't want you making that decision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I, in fact, I remember I had this stash of GoBots mm. that was on layaway at like Caldor or something. Yeah, Which is yeah. another name that if you, you really only know if you're in a certain class. Um, <laughs> but Which is funny like, because... Uh, w- I, uh, when did, I think we maybe started shopping at Caldor. What's funny because as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, I didn't know that. Um, but it actually, it's super true. Where I think we started shopping at Caldor when we moved to Northern Virginia. Yeah, uh-huh. and I was in tenth grade, which was the f- and I specific. It might have even literally been at a Caldor. I remember my mom bought a winter coat for me on layaway. Yeah, and I was kind of shocked because I remember the only. I didn't know that layaway was a real thing. Bismarck he referenced it a couple of times in a couple of songs really? that he did and I think I knew that it was a quote unquote you know this is not PC but like it was a poor person's thing because uh-huh. he had a line about someone was so poor they had to put a a packet of now and laters on layaway <laughs> and then I remember like yeah we were doing like winter shopping because my the whole reason that we moved to Northern Virginia was my dad worked for Citibank most of his career this is in the early 90s the 90s recession you know mm. corporate America's hemorrhaging jobs The story I was told was that my dad, you know, people in his company were offered like an early retirement package of like, well, if you leave now, here's what you definitely will get. Mm -hmm. If you just get fired, you may not get any of this. So he made the strategic decision to leave. It's entirely possible that he was laid off and my parents just didn't want to tell us that. But either way, he was out of work for a year and a half. He finally got hired in dc that's when we moved to the east coast and so but i remember we were at a caldor i think and i needed a winter coat because it's like oh well we're actually now on the east coast so you actually have to like a a thick coat so i remember my mom like went to the layaway counter and in my mind i was sort of like layaway we're not poor like we go on vacations every year like my dad wears a suit and tie yeah to to go to work like and i didn't say anything but i was sort of like huh and i i think i was even like 
I don't think my mom knows how rich we are. We, d- yeah. we don't need layaway. <laughs> yeah, we did. So yeah, yeah, yeah I was. Um, so I, I had, and then so so for those of you who don't know, <laughs> uh, layaway is when you have to can't buy it now, so you sort of have the store set it aside. And there probably is some kind of like scheme where it's like interest. Like oh yeah, yeah, probably sure yeah. There's a, there's a cut there, but anyway, so you buy it later when you have the money, and they literally lay it away. You have to go to a different part of the store, and it's in a bag, and they give it to you afterwards when you have enough to to, to afford it. And and Caldor is where you went when you couldn't afford Kmart. So mm, yeah, so uh, so yeah, we lay away all these GoBots, not even Transformers. GoBots, go yeah, because again, they're way cheaper, right? Yeah, and I still remember getting like a bounty of GoBots, like twenty GoBots, mm, like mm-hmm. when they finally got yeah. away. I was so happy, right? Um, so yeah, I don't even know how. Oh, so sort of just giving you the the economic landscape, yeah. right, of me growing up, right? And we didn't go on vacation. Like that was part of the. I still remember having this conversation with my mom about like, hey. Uh, my friends, this is when I was going to private school, my friends all go on vacation. Why can't I go on vacation? Right. And she should have said, look, if you want to go back to public school, we can go on vacation, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like that was my first lesson in like the trade-offs, yeah. right? That, yeah. that, 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 that poverty involves trade-offs, that, mm-hmm. that, that richness does not. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that was kind of the, the economic environment of it. And I felt that pretty acutely. And I think that informed my sense of very utilitarian filmmaking. Right? Mm-hmm. Like when I made my first feature film, we did everything in two takes. Yeah. Like, we didn't fuck around. Yeah. We, and we, re- we rehearsed so that we could do right. everything in two takes. Like, we rehearsed the hell out of everything. And we were able to, it was, it was guerrilla filmmaking. We would set up, get the shots, yeah. get out, set up, get the shots, get out. And you just keep doing that, doing that, doing that. And I, I, I can't help but think that was informed by, like, living with sparseness. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> and understanding yeah. how to squeeze value out of things. Yeah, you, you don't have s- seven days to, like have the the sun be just right to like convey the it's like no we have to find a way to make this work yeah. like oh i'll yeah. give you a perfect example of that so we um so the first film i made the one i was telling you about about the game assassin least dangerous game so i had storyboarded uh, a finale uh in a sort of a common room of a dorm um it was the final confrontation between the good guy and the bad guy and um i had you know choreographed it like with a series of long shots like so uh, a couple, a couple um, shots that were fairly long, so you could actually see everything that was happening. And then, at the beginning of the day, two of our lights, and we only had three lights, two of our lights broke, mm. and we had to send a PA out to like you know middle of nowhere, like mm-hmm. Linthicum, Maryland, to yeah. go get new lights, not being sure when she'd actually sure. get back. Yeah. Right. And so I had to on the fly storyboard a new sequence that was all done in close-ups because when you only have one light left, and we literally had one light left. When you only have one light left, you have to sh- you have to bring the camera closer. That's just the way film works. The more light you have, the further away you can put the camera. Less light you have, the closer the camera has to be. So I had to re-storyboard that entire sequence only using close-ups. Yeah. Um, which was actually kind of like a fun creative exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't fun in the moment, but in right. retrospect, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting challenge. Yeah. But but yeah, we just re-storyboarded it like on the like because again, time is ticking. Like this yeah. is the last day of shooting. Like if we don't get it today, we're not getting it. Um, and re, you know, shot it just using that one light with a bunch of close-ups. And I honestly, I think the scene actually worked better that way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, but um, but yeah, but that's the sort of like you you react and deal with what you got. If we had been super rich, we'd been like, okay, you know, you go. Um, we'll, we'll order a light when it gets here. We'll shoot. We'll shoot it the way we wanted to because we can afford to bring everybody back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It. So that that reminds it. It reminds me of two things. One, the way that you're talking about having to improvise with like, you know, this, you know, 
having to storyboard and then, you know, shoot, you know, completely different scenes based on just the technical limitations of this light burned out. You only have one. Yeah, it feels very much. It's like the the like top chef, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. version of like you can make a souffle for vegetarians, but you literally only have all of this meat and some basil. Find a way to have it that it, it's, it's not going to make a vegetarian super appalled. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't know, like, you know, I prayed over the spam and then the basil somehow took on like a new flavor that tastes like steak. It's like, wow, how did you do that? And the other person's like, I didn't do anything. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I just love like all of that, like creative, just like, yeah, having to think on the fly because, yeah, it's super awesome. You know, I'm, I'm sure in the moment you're like, this fucking oh, the moment sucks. Like, oh, my God, what the fuck are we yeah, doing? Yeah, like, <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. So, yeah, so it's, so it's the film version of Top Chef. So that's one. The other thing is, um, so I watch the, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's kind of new show, Comedians in Cars Getting oh, yeah, Coffee. Yeah. So he, he did an interview with Dave Chappelle in Washington, D.C., where Chappelle spent some of his time. Mm-hmm. And they went by Dave Chappelle's old high school, which is like this performing arts school which I, I is a public school so it's funded by the city of dc mm-hmm. but like it's immaculate it's beautiful mm-hmm. and either because dc you know has balanced budgets and is actually doing well or maybe like a donor gave money but like they did this massive overhaul and they did like a 75 million dollar renovation to the auditorium i might be making up that number but it looks like it looks super expensive but jerry seinfeld is he's like they pull up to chappelle's high school because chappelle has to drop something off there so Jerry Seinfeld's like, that, that's your high school? Because it, it, it's a mansion, essentially, mm-hmm. that was turned into a school. And then they walk around in the auditorium, and Seinfeld is like, whoa. He's like, this is beautiful. And then, and then he makes a joke about, he's like, I feel so sorry for these kids. He's like, he's like, they're, none of them are going to be successful comedians. But, <laughs> like, he's like, why would you aspire to play in Carnegie Hall? Like... Th- this theater is better than Carnegie Hall. You have no motivation to, to get any better. Yeah. So, yeah. So I feel like, you know, in, in all of your guerrilla filmmaking, it's like, you know, you, you just you, you have to be so inventive to, yeah. to make it work that, yeah, it's better than if someone, you know, gave you like a Pixar to just run wild, young man. Yeah. Well, I mean, Rodriguez said it best. He's like, you know, when you have a lot of money, you solve problems with money. When you don't have a lot of money, you solve problems with creativity. I mean, mm, it's a yeah. little bit of an overgeneralization, but it generally is true. Yeah, it is generally very true. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, so, so when you're, a, you know, a kid or a teen and you're just watching films for just pure enjoyment, like what's the stuff that you're gravitating to? Uh, so the, the, the great 80s action movies, right? So you got your Star Wars, your Raiders of the Lost Ark, your James Bond films, your Lethal Weapons, Die Hard, of mm, course, mm-hmm. was the yeah. big turning point. Um, all of that stuff. Um, I, I just, I loved that. It sort of informed and captured my imagination. Oh, uh, James Cameron's over. So you got your Terminators, your Aliens movies. All of that was in there too. Um, yeah. And I think, I still remember, so I would go out to, um, Columbia, even when we didn't live in Columbia, we'd sometimes go back for the 4th of July. They have the, mm-hmm. this artificial lake in Columbia, and they have fireworks over it. It's beautiful. And I remember, like, one summer, we had just watched Terminator 2, and then we went to um, the fireworks afterwards. And I remember saying to my mom, like, I want all of my movies to be like this. Because oh, wow. we were sitting where, like, the fireworks were, like, directly overhead us. And I yeah. loved the notion of things that were just bigger than me. Yeah. Right? And that had spectacle. Um, that's sort of the other thing. That's when I fell in love with Spielberg. So his right. work during the eighties, you know, your ETs and all that stuff. Um, 
so that really, I think I was looking for something bigger than me that sort of just took me on a ride, like that the escapism of the 80s really spoke to me. Now, do you think that was because of like the bullying and maybe, you know, not having the dad around and like feeling like you had to be small to not be like... I don't know. I mean, I think I definitely, you know, I'm literally in therapy for this stuff right now. Sure, but, yeah. Um, I, I think that there's like control issues that come with sort of a sense of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And... On the one hand, there's like seeking out control all the time and like sort of being very defensive. But on the other hand, I feel like when I was at the movies, I could lose control or yeah. I could like cede control to this thing that was bigger than me, right? And I could sort of get lost in it, but in, in a way that felt safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if that's it, but I remember having that feeling. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. That's it's it's super interesting because um, I mean, one of the things that I'm always intrigued about is how much of the art that we're drawn to is like, oh, well, it's the thing that I saw in childhood, and so like I just always have a strong emotional reaction to it, and I probably would have liked this just as much if my mom was a venture capitalist and, right. like, you know, and my dad was like a high-end diplomat, or if they were like, you know, truck drivers or something. Yeah. And then, because cause I think like... Th- there's always sort of like that element of mm-hmm. stuff because one of the things I've realized in the world of sci-fi fantasy is that I used to tell people that I that I was a big sci-fi person and it's like I'm really not. I'm really mainly a as a kid a Star Wars and a Star Trek person mm-hmm. because they were always on and um a lot of times like my brother like those were the movies that me and my brothers would watch together when they were home from Christmas break because my brothers are seven and nine years older than me so they were in college when I was in elementary school so I only saw them rarely so it's like oh at Christmas time like we would watch Empire Strikes Back so like so it's it's the association of those movies that gives me a warm fuzzy feeling as opposed to like trying to watch Blade Runner now where it's like, oh, well, like this is kind of like a serious, depressing movie. <laughs> so um, or or like with the now I'm really into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I did not read any of the comics sure. growing up at all. And part of it is that like, yes, like they are well made, very captivating movies for the most part. Like to me. Captain America, the Winter Soldier is one of my favorite movies ever. Oh, yeah, it's like, a great action film. It's it's a great action film. And just the whole like political political espionage, like yeah. who do you trust? It's very compelling cinema. But there is also a component of almost all of those movies. I found this like collective of black nerds, and like we all go see those movies together. Yeah. And so part of it is it's like clearly the Marvel movies are just like they they are the 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 template for the summer blockbuster yeah. now. But also it's like, oh, it's really cool to see these movies with a bunch of other black dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a new thing. So like so the the emotional experience around it is just as powerful as like the content. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like it's the same thing with like the Star Wars movies where it's like, oh, like it was super fun to watch those with my brothers around Christmas time as opposed to when my brother, was alone in his room watching Doctor Who on like a Tuesday afternoon. It's like, well, that's not that fun. So it's like, man, I don't, it's, it's yeah, it's like, I, I don't have a warm uh, affinity for Doctor Who in the same way because the experience is different. So yeah. I just think, I and I'm always just sort of fascinated in hearing people's stories about like, oh, how much of it is you're longing for something and how much of it is like, you just fucking liked it because I don't know, yeah. it was cool and shit blew up and whatever. 
Yeah, and I think there's definitely that element as well. But I think, and, and something I should I really point out is that my, my I mean, never actually put it in these words before, but I think it's true. My mom was a black nerd. Like, yeah. she was deeply into sci-fi. She had a huge collection of, like, sci-fi books. And I remember, like, going into her room sometimes and just looking at the covers. Like, yeah. Like, those old, really artsy mm-hmm. sci-fi covers, yeah. like yeah. Death World covers and stuff like that. And they're just gorgeous in and of themselves yeah. i almost never read the books i just looked at the covers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and she got me into like star trek and, and doctor who and, and all that stuff like i feel like she supported that or yeah. sometimes literally got me into it and i felt that's where her tastes gravitated yeah. so i inherited a decent amount of my geekiness from her right so there's definitely that association as well um yeah all right and so then as you're as you're moving through college and young adulthood and you're now able to seek out mm-hmm. films and different art, you know, artistic mediums, but focusing on film specifically, did you, were you, was it a thing of like, okay, well like now I'm going to watch Spielberg and other action people with like a critical lens where it's sure. like, you know, I'm going to do that. But then, but were you also like, oh, I'm going to, you know, watch all of Scorsese stuff because like, if if you I feel like for people that are between the ages of like 50 to I guess now mm-hmm. well I'll just say this when I was at UArts even though I was studying theater m- half of the people in the theater department were like people who really wanted to be making films and sure. and you know I maybe their parents said the same thing that my mom said like no study theater cuz you don't have a camera <laughs> so so I just remember like all of the discussions that we ever had in you know drinking beers late at night it was just like who like who could talk the most about Scorsese Mm -hmm. and De Palma and um you know I was a sophomore in college when Boogie Nights came out Mm -hmm. and so then I had a friend who like Paul Thomas Anderson was his dude and I guess at that point like Boogie Nights was like only Paul Thomas Anderson's second film but he's like no like you got to see Hard Eight it was originally called Sydney (laughs) but the studio changed it so so like even though I had no when I came to college I really didn't have a conscious artistic aesthetic developed in my mind but because literally all of my friends were talking about the deer hunter raging bull butch cassidy and the sundance kid you know whatever like i watched all of those films and we kind of like shat on action films Mm -hmm. except for james cameron like james cameron was always respected um and i guess weird hill to die on (laughs) yeah yeah i think it was because I knew people who really loved The Abyss. Sure. Um, and Again, I, a weird hill to die yeah. on, but sure. <laughs> and I think also since Terminator 2 came out when I was in seventh grade, like mm-hmm. that was kind of like the first R-rated movie that a yeah. lot of us saw. And people really liked Ridley Scott because Ridley Scott oh, was, sure. was Aliens, Ridley's, right? Ridley's all art. Like, yeah. Art director. Yeah. And, like, and literally went to art school. <laughs> yeah. But like, so I mean, so like, did you go through the thing where like you had to watch The Deer Hunter and you uh, had to watch, I don't know, uh, Mean Streets or whatever? No. I mean, I, I, you know, pretty defiantly was a Spielberg escapist defender fan during that entire I, time. Like, I respect I like, that. I re- Fuck you, I like Spielberg. Spielberg's awesome. Like. I don't care what you think. Now, yeah, because my 19-year-old mean... self would be appalled at you <laughs> making that statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't give a fuck. But yeah, the, the, I'm glad. The, but, but at the same time, I was educating myself in those things, right? So I went through a phase 
uh, through high school where I was really trying to like find out what the secret sauce was for like finding good movies. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at first I went with like different actors I liked, you know, like Harrison Ford or whatever. But then I would see like a shitty Harrison Ford movie and be like, okay, it's not the actor. What might it be? Oh, maybe. And, it's when, the and what's a shitty Harrison Ford movie you think? I don't know. Um, Firewall. I don't even know that film. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I was thinking regarding Henry, which I've never seen. I never but saw that. But yeah, it just yeah. seemed like you know it was. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, oh, there's. Pretty the, good, yeah, I'm like, you, you're just like a regular guy in this movie, so yeah. that was kind of yeah. upsetting. Okay. Um, All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up Firewall. Uh, maybe don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, or maybe it was. Uh, oh, maybe it's the director. So, but then I'll see a shitty movie from a director I like. I'm like right. Okay, maybe it's that director. Oh, the writer. And then I really got into following screenwriters, and I could still find crappy like. Yeah. There's a, a handful of crappy like David Mamet movies um, but uh, yeah, in any handful, case all of them maybe exactly <laughs> <laughs> and I like Mamet but when when he bombs he really bombs so so the uh, so I never like found that through line per se but I just but it, but it made me pay attention to the mechanics of making a film mm, right mm-hmm, and understand mm-hmm. that there were different people involved and there were still like it helped me understand how, how movies work yeah was by trying these little experiments so by the time I got to college right I'm really deeply getting into that and so I would take like films of the 70s and I really got an education about you know how these different filmmakers were working what they were saying what you know the dynamics at play there and I got a respect for these different yeah. directors um, and when I took um, uh, intro to screenwriting um, and uh, advanced screenwriting. I had uh, Mark Lapidula, a fantastic um, uh, teacher who really helped me understand uh, subtext, mm-hmm. right? And really start to understand what a movie could do. So I'm going to give you just a two second film course on Psycho. Psycho is all about uh, people, who, a person who has mother issues in a big bad way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole opening scene of the movie is really helped set up Marion Crane's arc, right? We're think we're going to be following Marion Crane and 50 year old spoiler she's going to die in 30 minutes but we're going to really get to understand her before she dies so her death will have meaning sure. impact um, the first scene we see her with is with her lover and it's clear that um, she wants to run away with him but they don't have any money right so we've got that thing she needs money next scene she is in the at her job at the bank right and what Hitchcock does for the next like two minutes is very subtly but very pointedly point out how badly she needs money and how badly she isn't married because what Marion wants is to get married um, but she needs money and so a guy comes in to the bank to deposit some money that is for his daughter's dowry right mm-hmm. point one then he flirts with Marion Crane um, uh, the other secretary in the office who's Hitchcock's daughter by the way looks at Marion and says, well, he didn't flirt with me. He must have seen my ring. Boom, there's another one. And mm, there's like mm-hmm. four or five little mm. subtle digs. Now, the scene is about this guy coming in and, and lay, laying down this money that she's about gotcha. to steal. Yeah. But why she steals it is right. being hit over and over and over again. And I'm like, this is like a lecture he gives and unpacks that scene in like 30 minutes. And I'm like, my jaw's on the phone. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Hitchcock is screaming at us that she desperately wants to get married. So when she steals the money, it's like, Mm, of course mm-hmm, it makes perfect mm-hmm, sense right. right and then I'm like oh that's what a film can do those are all the different knobs that I could be turning right yeah I'm like okay I need to rethink this film thing like what can I really do with this right so I think that had a huge influence on how I kind of approached the craft and that's why then I could say okay I'm going to pay attention to these filmmakers that everybody likes but on those terms right like how well are they doing these things that I know are meaningful and powerful yeah nice I like it I like it so who who do you think is your Mount Rushmore of filmmakers right now? 
I mean, is it is it all the action people? Like, is it Spielberg, Ridley Scott, no, no Richard no, no. Donner? Like, I mean, I mean, I mean, there's probably a separate action Mount Rushmore. Sure, that, you know, John Woo is probably very prominent on. Sure, but, sure, yeah, um, yeah. But in terms of like, you know, like, if I had to like place it right now, and it's and and it's good that you say right now because I think it does shift. Yeah, time. like there's probably Spielberg. It's probably Scorsese too, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, he does amazing work. Um, literally at this moment, Bong Joon Ho, Bong Joon, sorry, Bong Joon Ho is on there. Just because I just watched Parasite and I'm thinking back on his other movies, and okay, freaking incredible. And he's one of the few people really make doing genre stories about class. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so that's definitely up there. Um, and yeah, I just uh, probably flipping between um, Ryan Johnson and um, who else? So uh, Ryan Johnson, who directed Looper just, and then yeah, did uh, one of the new Adam last, Driver. He did Star Last Driver Wars. and he did or sorry, Last Last, last Jedi, and then um, he just finished. I just saw Knives Out. That's why that's fresh. Oh Knives right, yeah, he did do which that. Freaking yeah, I want to see that. That looks because um, also I just side note. Um, Chris Evans is one of the most handsome human beings that's like ever existed. <laughs> he's great in it. He, yeah, he he was one of the he makes it almost worth it all on his own. And he he just seems also just like a genuinely like fun guy. Like it's like oh like I feel I would want to hang out. Yeah. with you. Yeah, I mean I I love him. You know I love him in all of the Captain Americas. Um, I didn't. I feel like he did a serious movie where he plays a guitar or something. It's on Netflix. I don't know. I didn't see that, but and I just watched one of his interviews on the Tonight Show where he was promoting. Knives out. Yeah, so I want to see it, but you know, I mean, I'm sure you can relate to this because you said your kid is 13, 11. 11. Now, yeah, I mean, since we're in the you know one and a half year old phase, it's like I'll have fun seeing that movie in two years. <laughs> you know, I have, I, I'm just, you know, I find myself making special time just to do my laundry. Right. So it's like I don't, yeah. I don't know when I'm going to see that, but yeah, I definitely want to see Knives Out. Yeah, I, I always forget that uh, Ryan Johnson did that. Yeah, I love and Looper. Rick. Is another one if you want to check out. That's the early Brian Johnson stuff. He did that with yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah. Where it's it's like in the um like the mental health facility. No, it's a, it's a film noir, but at a high school. Oh, it's about like, like it's uh like they they do like a heist or or no, there's so something the, or no, the heist is Brothers Bloom. Uh, the brick is like the brick in question is literally a brick of heroin. Um, and it's someone dies at the beginning, and the gotcha. has to figure it over. Eleven has to very is very like a gumshoe, but it's all set in high school. Okay, yes, like someone told me about it's it. It's fantastic, and it's like super like Raymond Chandler dialogue style. Right, right, stuff. right. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, yeah, and and you said it's it's like it's got like a film noir vibe yeah. to it. Cool. Yeah, because I think what I think how I learned about it was um, there was a period where literally all I thought about was the film Inception and how cool <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt looked in Inception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I actually, I'm not even making this up, I started wearing a suit to work just because <laughs> of JGL in Inception. Yeah, yeah, and also yeah, yeah. Partial, part of it was that like I never, it took me a while to feel like an, a, a full-grown adult. Like mm-hmm. I, just, I didn't feel like an adult because like all of the sort of the markers of being an adult like I didn't have. Yeah. And so then one seeing him in Inception where like he looked like a man. And I remember because yeah. he's, you know, he's a couple years younger than me. So I remember seeing him on Third Rock from the Sun and right. being like, oh, he's a little boy. I'm like, well, A, he's a man. He looks really good in the suits. And I always kind of hated suits because like my dad wore a suit to work. And like I, I have a good relationship, like a great relationship with my dad. But the suit was always like, you know, 
being a, a soulless drone and hating your work and like it's so boring and stiff. And so I'm like, wow, you look like you look sexy, like like you right, look like right, right. compelling. And then also, since I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt so much in 500 Days of Summer, and mm-hmm. to me, that was one of the first films that I saw that really was like, oh, like, you're like the guys that I know. Like, you you listen to The Clash and Death Cab right, for Cutie, right, 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 yeah. and you have these unhealthy obsessions with these girls that are not emotionally available to, like, reciprocate, and mm-hmm. then you, like, blame all of that onto them and, you know, project your, like, weird hipster misogyny onto them. <laughs> yeah. So completely like all of me, me and all my friends. Mm-hmm. So then when I saw him in Inception, I was like, I... Like I would just like do like Google image searches of him and all right. of his different suits and I would try to like make my stuff. Yeah. But anyways, I was talking to someone and then they were like, oh, if you love Inception, you'll love Brick because it's like the vibe of Inception except in a high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know how accurate that actually yeah. really is. This person might have just been trying to like sort of make the bridge. Yeah, for me, yeah, yeah. so so when I'm like, oh yeah, it's a heist movie, because like in my mind, I'm, You're I'm about Inception, yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh, it's just like Inception, except yeah, like they're I don't know, they're trying to steal the intellectual property of their principal or something. <laughs> but sounds like it's not exactly not really, like no. that. I mean, if you okay. want to, your your analogs are going to be like The Big Sleep. That's your analog. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Like, so again, going back to kind of like, you know, origin story and white influences. Like, what you say about that reminds me when I was in high school. I would look to Rolling Stone for mm, fashion mm-hmm. tips, right? Yeah. Um, that's when I started getting into Rolling Stone, like maybe around junior year, and I would flip through, and I would just look and see, like, what kind of looks do I want to imitate? Yeah. Because I wanted to look cool. I wanted yeah. to be popular. And and again, like, that's a Rolling Stone. That's, uh, that's a bunch of white dudes. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. Is, I'm looking at absolutely George Michael, right? right. And trying to right. figure out how to dress and wanting yeah. a leather jacket because George Michael had a leather jacket, yeah. right? I wasn't looking at, like, how Michael Jackson mm-hmm. dressed or how Prince mm-hmm. dressed. Like, which in and of itself is a sort of eh, rocky terrain because absolutely a ton of white influence on absolutely. how they're dressing. Absolutely. But, but I wasn't even going that far. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was too black for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Michael Jackson with his skin lightning and series of white wives and yeah. massive acceptance yeah. in all in, in middle America. Yeah. That, yeah, that was too black. Nah, yeah. It's, it's kind yeah. of the story of my life. <laughs> well, so, so when you're, when you're growing up and you're, you know, like you're just like, you know, you're loving, Spielberg and Die Hard and you're flipping through Rollins, Rolling Stone and you're, you know, making, you know, music that's very heavily influenced by white artists. Like, did you feel, what was your feeling about it? Like at the time, like, you know, were you like, I'm not really a black kid or like, I just like what I like or like, how did you feel about yourselves? And then what was the, like, how did your family feel about mm. it? even like cousins and then like the kids on your block who weren't even necessarily bullies per se. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but were they like, you listen to that? Like we all listen to this. Why yeah. do you like, not even a like, fuck you. We're going to beat you up. But like, huh? That's yeah. bizarre. Like wh- what were your experiences with that? So I didn't really grow up with friends, right? Okay. I had no one to have that conversation with. And the, the, the one friend I kind of did have growing up, like in junior high, was a Japanese kid who like gotcha. listened to like Guns N' Roses. Sure. And yeah. so I got into Guns N' Roses. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, I didn't really have that point of comparison to think it was weird. And my family, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think my mother was okay with that because she wasn't necessarily interested in me becoming black, right? Like my blackness was not top of mind for her. My education was right. top of mind for her. 
And I, I mean, I speak the way I do in part because of her. I sure. think she sort of enforced proper English. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think she would have liked me talking black, as it were. Right. Um, and so, oh, and so uh, so that that, yeah. re- that reminds me, or uh, uh, what was the degree of just racial consciousness in your house? Yeah. Just in general. So it's interesting, uh, and it, these are like bits and scraps and pieces. Like your your parents' backstory is always a bit of a mystery, but from what I could gather. In conversations over the years, my mother was actually very involved in the Black Power movement for mm-hmm. a while, uh, like in the '70s, you know, in Rochester, and she was with a group that was sort of like, you know, black radical, not like violent or anything, but like, you know, um, just a- Africanness. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she knew the guy who invented Kwanzaa. Like oh, that, Milana Karenga. That level. Wow, that's like of, like that's deep. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and she became, and I don't know the details, but she came very disillusioned with it. Sure. Like that movement. She became very disillusioned with what they were doing to the point where over time she shifted from being like an anti-Reagan Democrat in the 80s to like a pro-Bush, like, you know, Republican mm-hmm. um, in, the, in, the, in the thousands. Yeah. Which, um, and, and like, I mean, Eldridge Cleaver in the 80s, you know, Eldridge Cleaver, who was like super involved in the Panthers, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it became a in the 80s became like a, like a very strongly like religious conservative and like was you know a, a big Reagan supporter mm. and um i've heard from several sources that Clarence Thomas was was quite the like radical in I the 60s that. yeah so yeah that. i mean and yeah. i and i i i am personally someone who believes that a lot of those those two seemingly disparate political ideologies have a lot in common sometimes on things that I actually think are like quite helpful in terms of like having a deep suspicion that the national federal government is going to be working on your behalf and like don't don't depend on them because like they're not reliable and they do you dirty down to the like homophobia misogyny like the you know the, the 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 liberation rhetoric that's like really that's just a guise to say really shitty things about women. Like, cause I've, I've known like a bunch of dudes who it's like, no, well like, you know, like the, you know, black men are, you know, are being constantly emasculated and asked to be small in society. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, like that's true. And it's like, you know, because you know, women are naturally subservient. It's like, all right, you're losing me. And it's, it's like, it's like, no, cause like the, the black man needs to take more responsibility for his household. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, yeah, you know, like that's why your wives shouldn't work because anytime women work, that's how boys end up gay. Like dude, no, wow. stop. Like I've been in enough of those conversations. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm also curious, you know, uh, I always make a joke that like there are only seven people that listen to this podcast, but I'm curious as to like what the reactions are from yeah. the people that are going to be listening to this, because I feel like I have, I definitely have, you know, some friends who are on one, you know, um, uh, one end of the political ideological spectrum where um, if you, so I know that I have, there are some people who are listening to this who the second you started saying like proper English, they're probably like, fuck this dude. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, that, that's the colonial mindset. Yeah. You know, he's a he's a fucking white man in disguise. Like, what the fuck? And like, you know, Mike was kind of my friend and I was tolerating this podcast because, you know, he's nice to me. But like, fuck him for enabling this. And then I'm sure like there I'm sure there's like at least one or two people. Maybe if it's someone like, you know, I went to elementary school with who thinks that like I'm like the nice you know, a safe black person. So when we start going like super deep on like white people, they're like, why is Mike so angry? So I'm just, yeah. 
So I've the uh, anyways, but you're saying so your mom went from like you know very much in the pro Africa pro yeah seventies like camp to the you know like a race isn't a thing like, yeah and I think that that for her like I sort of see two conceptions of racial harmony in this mm-hmm. country one conception is that you know is the colorblind con- the post-racial colorblind conception right. of like you know everybody's equal doesn't matter what color you are doesn't matter what gender you are, doesn't it, it doesn't matter blank where the blank is any difference yeah right and that's that's the world we're trying to get to that's one conception of it and i think that was more or less what she was subscribing to and sort of like I don't think she would have used these terms, but whitening me was mm-hmm. a means to an end, right? Like it sort of like keeps me safe, gets sure. me educated, gives me access, which she's not wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like statistically, every one of those things is yeah. true. There's another ver- vision of racial harmony, which is no um, diversity makes us stronger. It is good that your, your difference should be celebrated, right. not marginalized right. or eliminated. So yes, you are different from me, but that's awesome. Yes, I am different from you, but that's awesome. Like, how do we make that even cooler? Right, right. right. Um, and that's a completely different way of looking at racial harmony. Absolutely. Way tougher. Yeah, way tougher. Way more complex. And I grew up, I, I kind of made the different shift, right? I shifted from, I think she shifted from, you know, version B to version A. I shifted from version A to version B, right? When I was growing up, I was against affirmative action, mm-hmm. right? I remember having a conversation about this because I was thinking of the post the, the post racial vision of racial right, harmony. Yeah. As I've gotten older, I've very much shifted over to the celebrating difference mm-hmm. version of post mm-hmm. racial harmony. So and and sort of thinking about history version of racial yeah. harmony. Um, so yeah, so that. Uh, but but when I was growing up, like there wasn't a whole lot of African consciousness in my house. Right, there wasn't a whole right. lot of talking about that. And I don't think it was discouraged, but it wasn't like brought to the fore. Sure, sure. Yeah. So it, 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 this is super interesting. And um, one of the things that happens with a lot of the different episodes that I record is that like so like the conversation that we're having now, like this ends up being like 70 percent of, you know, the the conversations I have with uh, a lot of other people, partially because. To a certain level, like the the white influence is a sort of like a conduit to talk about like these sure. deeper things because a lot of what I really want to understand is just different black artists' relationship to white America, mm. you know, and not even from a judgment point of view because like you know you know that like I said like you know I've had people with a whole myriad of views and I'm super curious to like know like you know again like sort of what my white friends from elementary school think about <laughs> like when some of my guests are just like going off on white people yeah. and then 45 seconds later we'll be like oh yeah and then this song by the Foo Fighters is like the song that like <laughs> my my you know my very black wife and I danced to at you yeah. know at our wedding um you know and which we had no white guest at you know because I think that a lot of white people don't really understand the like the depth of like nuance and not even necessarily conflicted, although sometimes conflicted, oh, sure. but just like complex conversations and thoughts around race. Because for me, I'm really at a point where um, I diverse when people talk about diversity to me, that does that. I kind of hate the word diversity just in the sense of I want to know what people's definition of diversity is sure. Because I'm around, I've been around a lot of white people where if they have two black friends, that's diverse to them. Whereas if I have two white friends, it's like, why are most of your friends black? You know, (laughs) like the the joke I always make is that I feel like most of my white friends have the philosophy that 
a neighborhood that is 90% white and 10% black is a mixed neighborhood. A neighborhood that is 90% black and 10% white is a black neighborhood. So for me, I'm like, what's your definition of yeah. diversity? Because I'm just curious. You know, like, do whatever you want, but like, I want to, I just want to know what I'm dealing with. But I'm also sort of like in the vibe of, um, I think that people like to be around their own most of the time, however they define that, racially, artistically, yeah. uh, political affiliation. And I think that's kind of how human society evolves because like you you need to have sort of a tribe to be like, uh, you know, I, I am centered. The, this culture is the frame with which I interact with the world, mm -hmm. which I think it's it's just, it's that's a biological inevitability. Yeah. And I, d I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that there's many things inherently right with that. And I don't necessarily believe in like right or wrong in the world. I, I think of the world as productive and unproductive. Mm -hmm. However, I draw a distinction between the like, oh, I'm going to support my tribe first and foremost. Like I will go out of my way to support my tribe with whatever. And if I have a personal connection to someone from outside of my tribe, well, like I know you personally, so like I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. I think that's very fine as opposed to what the hell are you doing eating in a restaurant where my people go to? Right. Like, like, like I, I know I even have family members who fucking lose their minds when they see white people eating at like a, a black restaurant. Right. And my thing, it's like, I'm cool with it because like, I want black people to have their money. Now, if they're acting a fucking nut and engaging in like, you know, um, uh, cultural voyeurism mm -hmm. that I have a problem with, you know, and if they like, you know, they want to sort of see like the monkeys in their cages, it's like, yo, get the fuck out of here. Like, cause your, your money is blood money and I don't want it. Mm -hmm. But the, the fact of it doesn't upset me. And the fact that like, even if they might have racially problematic views, like coming into the spot, it's like, yeah, but ev ev everyone has problematic views about a group outside of their own. Yeah. Most of us don't want to admit it. Um, and, you know, like my wife and I were very conscious about like we wanted to move to this part of Philadelphia because it's a mostly black community. Mm -hmm. Literally, you can count the number of white people in this neighborhood like right. on a single finger. It's like, oh, like there's there's one of the seven white people. Um, that was a conscious decision of ours. We want Mercer to go to like mostly black schools. Mm -hmm. um, we want him to really have a mostly affirming black environment. And and we can do that from the standpoint of like we think that we we can do that and have him appreciate other cultures but like i also want him to be in mixed environments so he knows what that feels like i also want him to be like the only black kid in a whole sea full of white people and to have a bunch of them be like kind of super problematic because he needs to navigate that as well mm -hmm. but i say all that to say that like um i know what diversity means for me i i don't believe in like all people coming together in a hands across america kind of vibe mm -hmm. Because most people, even a lot of black people, really don't are not interested in that. Mm -hmm. I am interested in that, but I also realize it's like d diversity for us might be like in this environment, 90% of the people you're interacting with are black. In this environment, like, you know, with whomever, you might like be like the only black kid. And then you, you know, with all these other groups. So, yeah, I, but I think that a person can do all of that. And to me, that, I don't know. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's it does. I mean, like the thing it reminds me of is this wonderful statistic where if there are 20% of women in a room, men think that there are half of the room. Is exactly. Women, exactly. Right. Exactly. Because that's how they're skewed. And right. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is pattern recognition, right? So 
when people grow up in environments where there are mostly men doing this and mostly women doing that, it sets up a pattern. So if anything doesn't fit that pattern, all of a sudden it's oversized. It's yeah. is oversized. So if you grow up never seeing a black person and suddenly there's two black people, oh my God, we're being overrun because you haven't, you're not mm-hmm. used to it. Yeah. The number of black people I know has, it's gone up 5,000%. Yeah. Yeah, but that uh, that but that's all that's all based that's all against the baseline. We always we we don't view things in a vacuum. We view things based on our experience. Yeah. And if our experience has been mostly white people, then when you see like three or four black people, it's going to be different. So when our experience is mostly dudes doing stuff, and you see women doing stuff, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. why are the women trying to do our stuff? It's like there's two of them, and they're being paid less than you. Chill out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think I mean that's what I'm hearing when I when you talk about like what diversity means. Like you're talking about the perception right. of diversity, right? Versus numerical yeah. diversity, right? Like when I think of diversity, I think of the Avengers, right? Not in terms of racial diversity, but in terms of diversity of powers. Sure. Right? So a non-diverse rate of uh, Avengers would be all Iron Men, and mm-hmm. why would you have that? That's stupid. Right. Right. You want. Iron Man, you want Hulk, you want like Captain America, you want people with different power sets in there. Otherwise, your super group is kind of fucking useless. Yeah. So to me, when I think of diversity, I think of like, what are your superpowers? Like what, like when I think of the val- part, part of the value of diversity, mm-hmm. right? Like that slice of it is really about saying, okay, well, if it's three people who know the same things and do the same things, Unless we're trying to scale that one thing, right? It's not not actually helpful. It's not productive mm-hmm. to have three of the same person in the room doing that thing. It's actually way more productive to have one person who's good at this, one person who's good at that, one person who's good at the other. Then we can do more shit. Yeah. No, totally, totally. Um, another thing that I wanted to see, you know, what the the vibe was in your house, and then you know, and then how you and your wife go about, you know, raising, raising your kid is, did your mom have a kind of, uh, what I would call like an obvious or a, or a binary or a like litmus test sort of stuff for blackness. So, so the, the, the reason why I ask this is that, um, I am not politically, I've been all over the map. I am not a Democrat anymore, and I I do, and for me personally, the prospect of a Joe Biden or a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren presidency, for the issues that I care about in the world, I, the way that they operate, I do not think that they would take care of the issues that I care about. Some mm-hmm. of them would take care of a couple of those things, and I'm not someone who's like, Elizabeth Warren is trying to turn America into the Soviet Union. Like, I I don't think that. I, I don't. And I don't think Bernie Sanders is trying to do that. And Bernie Sanders is, like, so far away from me, at least domestically, on, like, the ideological spectrum. It's like, that that's completely not my dude at all. But, like, I think that they're all, like, nice people who, like, genuinely want the best thing for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, But, like, for me, in the environment that, like, I grew up in, being a Democrat and being black are like so synonymous in the world. And like, not only that, but like being a, a, like a full on Hubert Humphrey, Joe Biden, the unions will, the union big labor will like all of America's problems can be solved by more unions. Like Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not exactly how my dad thinks. Like it's an exaggerated version, but like literally, you know, if my dad was a stand-up comedian, he'd be like, why did the chicken cross the road? I don't know. We should have more unions. Like, that's just what he <laughs> believes. 
<laughs> and for the environment that he came from, yeah, that, that was that was a good joke. And like from the environment that like there, there's there's a particular cultural construct and like a cultural reality and context that has him feel the way that he does. Um, and a lot of my family is is in that philosophical camp. Mm-hmm. I am completely outside of that camp, and a lot of people assume that it's like that it like like I'm on this sort of like we should all be one like hands across America thing but it's like no like I'm actually like a super 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 pro black dude and for me a lot of this blackness is born out of one living in suburbs my whole life and being around a lot of air quotes well-meaning white liberals mm-hmm. who say almost the exact same racially problematic things that like the white conservatives that they deride um, it's like, yeah, but you kind of don't hang out with any black people, and the only black people you like are Kanye West and Joel Embiid. Like you like and Jay Z. Like you like black entertainers, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really on this like super rugged like self determination. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a freaking Garveyite. You know, I'm just like, you know, black people need to be completely, you know, engage in full on self determination because the United States government, particularly, you know, a the U.S. government, in my opinion, was like really set up to benefit white people. I mean, that's a historical fact. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and so, regardless of how well intentioned Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or even Barack Obama or even Cory Booker, if mm-hmm. if he was going to become the president, it's like, in spite of your best efforts, I don't think that what like you're trying to do is really going to help the young people at you know at 21st and Lehigh in North Philly, and so. You know, my my blackness and my sort of like, you know, political, uh, I don't know if radicalism is the right word, but it's like it's like I I can't support I can't be enthusiastic about any of those candidates because like the, the way that I move in the space as a black person runs counter to how they operate. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like if I said that to my family, they wouldn't know they wouldn't understand how to receive me because to them it's like well no if if you're a socially conscious black person like why would why would you not vote for joe biden or bernie sanders like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the vibe in my house so what i'm what i'm asking you is is that um with your mom was it a thing of like oh well no like being overtly black is being in the panthers it's wearing a dashiki you know Mm -hmm. it it is um, you know, talking about the principles of of Kwanzaa, because like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's like, I'm not one of those people that believes that like, w- wearing a dashiki makes you more Afrocentric than a person mm-hmm. who wears a suit and tie. It's like, well, what are the things that you think about, and do you are you actually working to better Black people? Because I've been in the situation that I feel like your your mom was in, where it's like, I. I've known tons of cats who talk about Kemet and talk about Kwanzaa and wear dashikis and talk about Pan-African liberation. And it's like, you treat black people the worst. Mm-hmm. Like, you treat black people super shitty. So to me, it's not the clothes that you wear. It's the vibe with how you treat people. But I feel like I might be in the minority in that situation. So like, with with that sort of weird incoherent babbling that I was doing... <laughs> Like what? What was the the vibe that you could tell from your mom? Does that make sense? So what I'm think, saying? I think by the time she had me, or the time I was politically conscious, like I said, she grew up not a big fan of Reagan. Um, sure. And I didn't. I wasn't politically conscious. I was like eight. Yeah. So I wasn't politically conscious of like the details of it, but I just got the sense, you know, Republicans bad, Democrats good. Right. Now, as she got older, 
And as she got more religious, like, mm, mm-hmm. she became very much more into self-determination. Sure. She became very much against black victimhood. Sure. Uh, or black infantilization. So sure. So she became very much into the good old fashions, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps right. scenario. Um, and that leaned very, that, that married well with neoconservative thinking sure. at the time. Right? Absolutely. So as the nineties went on, she was no fan of Clinton's, you know, there was an immorality to him that I don't think right. she jived with. Sure, sure. And uh I think she was a huge fan of Newt Gingrich, right? And so this notion of like the contract with America, mm-hmm. I think she was very down with that. Um and this notion of no, you need to like, you know, deal with your own shit. Mm-hmm. And don't take handouts and all that stuff mm-hmm. will make you weak. Um I think that was more where she was. And the sort of particular vein of evangelical Christianity she was in was what they used to call the name it, claim it crowd, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like you could say things and by saying them, speak them into being. It was mm-hmm. sort of pre-promise promise. Um, and I think that, again, drives well with this notion of self-determination sure. that the Republican Party was trying to Sure, sure. Saying, we don't need social programs. Yeah. We need people to, um, you know, deal with their own shit and, oh, by the way, give us tax breaks. Tax breaks. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think that's really where she was coming from with that. Um, and I don't know that that was especially, that was any more helpful to the black community right. than yeah. the, like, the Shiki Rain crowd. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was where she was coming from. Yeah. Well, see, and what see, what I find interesting about that, and, and this is a thing that, like, um, I get, at worst, I get a lot of shit and, like, fuck you, you're not really a black person and, like, you're mm-hmm. trying to undermine black people to, like, confuse stares where... The concept of like, you know, um, I mean, I'm I'm a full on self-determination person. So mm-hmm. I, I think for me, a, a lot of the a lot of the concepts that conservatives put forth, I'm like, I all of these concepts I actually completely agree with. I don't trust y'all to implement them because one with especially the whole. Yeah, like the contract with America, like, you know, the Republican Revolution 94 crowd the the vibe that i personally feel more than anything it's just like yeah but i think that y'all a lot of y'all actually just don't really like black people and mm-hmm. and and this is just the thing that you're using to like you're you're couching it in compassion but like y'all kind of think like we're dumb mm-hmm. and 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 unworthy um so it's like yeah in theory a lot of the stuff i actually believe in um which is one of the reasons that, like, you know, I consider myself a Garveyite, where I'm just, I'm just like, uh, the United States government has done black people dirty again and again and again and again. My philosophy is, it's like you don't have a good track record with us. Mm. I'm not going to police what other people think. I do not put my faith in the U.S. government to do anything mm-hmm. for the most part, um, especially with the education of my son. It's like, and but I also recognize that like I especially when it comes to knowledge of self it's like I I don't trust anyone outside of my family to help Mercer understand who he is and particularly Mm -hmm. how his blackness manifests for him so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that there there is a world that exists outside of the binary of um the super stereotypical Newt Gingrich Republican like pull yourself up by the bootstraps it's like yeah self-determination is a thing that i think most people benefit from but that whole crowd seems to ignore the fact that well black people actually did that for centuries and they did that in america 
and our neighborhoods were firebombed and we were mm-hmm. fucking murdered. So it's like, well, when we did that and a much smaller, you know, a, a, a very small percentage of black children were born to single mothers, um, black teenage employment rates were better than they were for white kids and black people were doing very well for themselves and essentially had completely independent economic ecosystems you were fucking frightened of it Mm -hmm. and you fucking murdered us and and the defense was niggers shouldn't have houses that nice and they shouldn't have those kinds of nice jobs so we did all of that Mm -hmm. and you fucking resented us so i don't have a I have a hard time believing your intentions. Sure. Now, there are a lot of social programs that I think, regardless of their good intentions, have had a very poisonous effect on the black community. You know, I think that that has happened. Mm -hmm. Um, However, when Republicans sort of are like, First off, anytime Republicans refer to the Democratic Party as a plantation, I'm like, no, stop calling things a plantation. Stop. Don't expect black people to like you. Stop doing that. But also it's like, you don't seem to understand the context of what happened. Black people played by the rules and we were murdered and ostracized and, you know, our hard-earned capital was like stolen from us. And these concepts of, these very Republican concepts of respect for private property when black people's private property was destroyed, we didn't get compensated for it. Mm-hmm. And then you have the 1964 election where you have Barry Goldwater, who was like, the Civil Rights Act is doing way too much. And Lyndon Johnson, who was like, I will do all of this for civil rights. So it's like, n- there, there's a particular reason why the black community has an affinity or a, a strong association with the Democratic Party. Sure. Even if that doesn't serve them well. But it's like... Y- Y'all don't actually really like black people that much. Um, So, but I feel like there is, those are the two opposites, but you know, I think that there is a nuanced ground that people can like live in, which is what I'm trying to do. Um, uh, So I was just sort of wondering, you know, if you're, you know, if your mom was sort of like living in the like super obvious, like pull yourselves up by the bootstraps or. I think she, I think she was living in the super obvious. I think the, the particular context of it though was religious. Like my mother right. was born again. I was born again. Sure. And the sort of vein of evangelical Christianity that we were subscribing to did very much believe in the power of words. Right. Mm-hmm. Literally what you say makes reality. Sure. Right. And so if that's your premise. Why would you need social programs? Right. Why would you need, you know, um, any kind of support, right? Um, you basically need laws that protect your, you and your property right. so that once you get it, no one can take it from you, which means you'll support things like um, tax incentives and right. tax cuts and tax loopholes because once you have it, why should anyone right. be able to take it, right? So I think that's where she was coming from in that notion, and I think she was rejecting what she had been dis- disillusioned by, and again, I don't know the details, when she was kind of more active in the black power movement. Um, again, to the point where she was listening to, you know, uh, Rush, uh, um, Glenn Beck religiously. Yeah, right? Boy. right? Yeah. But think about it. Like, yeah. that is the natural conclusion of a full-on self-deterministic, you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it, don't believe these other people out here because any of the, you know, support they're trying to give you is a lie. Right, right. Yeah, so that so there's a couple things I'm wondering. Like, I'm just wondering what's like what's going through your mind as I'm, you know, sort of describing mm-hmm. my my uh, my 
political philosophy because you have a very furrowed look on your brow and I can't tell oh, if, so if you're if you're appalled or if you're just like trying to like understand what the hell I'm saying because I, no, I feel like I, I'm not making very clear points or if you're just sort of like okay I'm just taking this all in no a, a little bit of both like I tend to come at it far more from a um, government can do whatever the hell it wants right government is capable of NASA yeah government is mm-hmm. capable of uh, the military. Yeah, absolutely. Which, in weird ways, is far more progressive than just about any other social program out there. If you want, I was talking to a psychiatrist who yeah. used to work in the military, she said, if you want to be a black woman with mobility, join the military. Yeah, no, that's true. If you want that's salary true. transparency, join mm-hmm. the military, mm-hmm. right? Pure tra- yeah. salary transparency. Like this, All these things we struggle with in the rest of the world. In fact, a lot of times, people get out of the military and struggle, and you have vets killing themselves every 20 minutes. Right. Statistic, it's because ours is the world that's fucked up, mm-hmm. right? So, and military is 100% government yes. funded, yeah. right? Now, I think it's simply, but you can also look at the public schools and say that's also what government is capable right. of. So I have difficulty painting the government with any one brush because I've seen the variety of-, of Yeah, yeah, most definitely, most definitely. At the end of the day, it's your will. Mm-hmm. Right? The reason the military looks the way it does is because most Americans can agree, oh shit, we need to spend a lot of money on defense. Mm-hmm. And that is a decision. That's not right. a default. There's no biological imperative there. Right. We're able to defend this country 50 times over with what we've got right now. We mm-hmm. You could argue we've overspent on that. But we did it because, generally speaking, we have this gut instinct that, oh, that's a thing that requires that much attention. Mm-hmm. When it comes to um, health, mm-hmm. right? when it comes to public education, we are far less convinced that, oh, yeah, um, the public school should look like a mansion. Right. That's a rarity. That's mm-hmm. rare that that's actually the mindset, right? Or that healthcare should look like, you know, NORAD. Yeah. Right? It could. It's just a question of how you're spending your money. So government in and of itself isn't biologically predetermined to produce shitty results or good Oh, yeah, results. no, no, not at all. It not at all. purely a matter of choice. Right. And the reason should be obvious. Government is people. It's not a bunch of fucking cyborgs. It's human beings right. who have been elected to right. an office who have motivations and yeah. intentions and compromises, yeah. and it results in decisions, decisions that affect people. Sure, sure. Scale. Yeah. Sure. But it's people. It's a bunch of people who kind of sort of know what they're doing sometimes, and some of them have very impure intentions. Some of them have very pure intentions. Mm-hmm. The same Democratic Party that produces Joe Biden produces AOC, and AOC has to fight her own party mm-hmm. just to get on the frickin' ticket, yeah. right? That's the world we live in, yeah. where everything is made up of conflicting forces. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing that I, I have difficulty believing in binaries. I have difficulty believing right. in oh, like that one thing. I can never trust that one thing. Yeah, probablistically, right, we right. Can say, oh, okay, the likelihood is given the track record, this is going to go that yeah. way, that way. But if you dig a little deeper, you can say, well, there's actual reasons this went that way, and there's yeah, 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 that went that way, yeah. Um, so that's kind of when what I'm responding to, or my my frow might be my frow might be burrowed, my brow might be furrowed <laughs> is like I, I i personally like when you talk about like whether or not you're going to trust government i'm like government is too big a word <laughs> right yeah yeah it's it's, like, it's a it's a massive entity i need, I need, I need more specific yeah there. Like, yeah because i would trust nasa to get me into space more than i would right. trust elon musk yeah you know? <laughs> yeah 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 and i see and i i think i think my thing is that um my my visceral emotional and like anecdotal understanding because you know with most of this stuff we really only know like 1.00 a 0.0001% of like what actually happens is that um ma- mainly i i don't want to put my my stock in something where it's like so if i know that something is within my locus of control mm-hmm. i don't want to relinquish that locus of control 
to really like anyone outside of my uh, family okay, sure. and and particularly about things that are like super 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 important and so like for instance like i'm because i'm i'm not uh uh, like an anarcho-capitalist where I'm like, literally everything should be privatized. There should be no, there should be no public parks. Like you, you should have a private, you know, uh, firefighting company. Like I don't believe in that shit. Cause I'm like, that's fucking yeah, that, kind of bonkers. That didn't work out well. Yeah. I'm like, that didn't work out well, but like, um, I mean, but like Chris Novoselic from Nirvana, like, you know, is kind of like an anarcho-capitalist, like, you know, and has, you know, run for the state legislature in Wisconsin. And yeah, he describes himself as like, an anarcho-capitalist, like, socialist, where I'm like, I kind of don't know how that works because I feel like those are, like, inherently the opposite, but man, whatever works for you. But but so, and I'm not someone who thinks that, like, um, you know, the, uh, the federal government is, like, trying to use the FDA as a Ponzi scheme to, like, bankrupt black America or, like, kill people. But I'm definitely of the philosophy of... Um, so something that I used to encounter all the time in a lot of the nonprofits that I've worked for is two things were always very concerning to me in the world of education. One, I used to um, work at an after-school program, which was in a financially and socially challenged community, no doubt. A lot of kids that came to our program, they'd be five or six years old, and a book giveaways were a big part of the work that we did. A lot of the kids that were in our program they literally never had a book inside of their house outside of us giving it to them. And a lot of the refrain from the community was the schools are underfunded and the libraries um, and our public schools, the books are outdated. And I'm like, I feel you, but like you, there, there are, there are several ways to get books inside of your home. And like my philosophy, it's like, the fucking school can be on fire, but like the education of our children is so imperative that like we can't rely on on this school or even nonprofits to do that for us. And and it's not a matter of being like you're a bad parent, shame on you. It's like I hear you, I hear you, and you may be going through a financial hardship that I can never even imagine. And with that, knowing how this country works. The school might not be able to provide, give the supports to you that like, even if they should, I don't know if they can. So don't be surprised if they can't do that for you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It, it does. But in, in practice, right, I think about like um, education is so important that we can't trust it to the government. Right. No, no, not, not, not even that. It's for me, it's it's not a matter of trust. I, I guess I feel like. Given the history of how this country has worked, if the government doesn't live up to its promises, particularly to our communities, mm -hmm. I just don't want people to be surprised. Oh, okay, sure. And I think that makes perfect sense. Like the, when I, the, I'm the, thinking that's about what like, I'm trying to say. You know, the um, I'm thinking more in terms of what it's capable of because so I'm a I'm a I'm a systems thinker. Yeah. I think about systems a lot, and that that to me is really the only flaw in this sort of like Newt Gingrich contract with America hold politicized by Bruce Rats and things like that's all good and well, but you have to acknowledge the system, the environment in which that is taking place. Absolutely, and if it's systemically designed to disadvantage certain groups. Absolutely, no amount of bootstrap pulling is going to make any absolutely yeah. Right? So Except that, like on the margins of like the middle class who can maybe become like an upper middle class. It's like this. And even then, they're going to lose their money, as historically black families with wealth have over the right. last few years, yeah. like generations of years. So 
So to me, you have to be aware of those systems. And when I think about that, then I, and then I have to start to think about, okay, well, why are those systems the way they are? Mm-hmm. What system do we actually want? Right. Because you're going to get one. That's just how humans Absolutely. are. We, Absolutely. We just generate systems. Yeah. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. So you're not going to get away from systems. So you have to say, okay, let's be intentional about the systems we have. Right. And again, I go back to the military example. It's sort of like, I could say the same thing. And I know this isn't what you were saying, but, um, you know, Defense, the defense of the country is so important. We have to <laughs> trust it to the government, yeah. right? Like, because the alternative is a shit ton of militias, right? It's, Absolutely. I don't know that I want Kansas no. nuclear bomb. Yeah, no, right? not at all. <laughs> or yeah. or the Kansas Municipal State mm-hmm. Department attack. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because um, that's kind of the alternative, right. right? So, and again, we've just decided that. Oh yeah, military is something that needs to get shit tons of money. Trillion right. dollars for military, sure. But give them two trillion. Like yeah. do it. And education. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, right? Just because that's how we've been raised to believe certain things should work. Right. But in terms of could it? Absolutely. Yeah. The money is there to do it. Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. Want to do it? Um, if we wanted to have a, you know, it has. It comes back to. I'll give you a perfect example. So, um, uh, had dinner recently with the guy who wrote the book. Um, uh, Goliath, and he, he's talking a lot about how over time the Democratic Party switched from during the New Deal thinking about which I'm going to acknowledge right here had all sorts of racial shit going on, but the New yeah. Deal, <laughs> which was very had a deep understanding of the connection between finance and social justice, mm-hmm. and then the Watergate babies, basically the Democrat Party we've had since the '70s, which consciously decoupled finance from social justice, and the way it goes is during the New Deal. You're reacting against fascism. You've just come out of World War II. You've seen what happened when power gets consolidated. And so anything that looks like consolidating power, including monopolies, gets shut down. Right. So when the banks fail, when there's a big financial crisis, what do you do? People who own the banks don't get to own them anymore. Uh, the bank, banks get broken up. And um, some people actually go to jail. Yeah. Right. We did that. The United States of America did that in the face of financial crisis. Jump to the new um, Watergate baby version of democracy, of Democrats, where it's separate finance will take care of itself. We need to focus on social justice and never the twain shall meet. Let banks do what they want. Get another financial crisis. What do we do? The um, people get to keep their banks. Yeah. We bail them out. And literally one person goes to jail. Mm-hmm. Right. Same, same government, yeah. same United States of America. At the same time, Sweden deals with a similar financial crisis. They break up the banks. They sent some people to jail, and the people who had the banks don't get to keep them anymore. And they ask Obama, hey, why didn't you use what they were calling the Swedish solution? And Obama says, well, Sweden's a much smaller country, and besides, that's not our tradition. And for those of you on the podcast, I just made this exasperated face. Yes. Like, not our tradition? Right. Not what government is capable of? I think we forget what government is actually capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, very conveniently forget what government is yeah, capable yeah, yeah. of. Um, when people decide that they want it to do that. Like, that's the sort of secret weapon of democracy. Because I agree, when this country was founded, it was founded in the interest of wealthy white landowners. Yeah. But they left a back door. Yeah. Right? A really big fucking right. back door in the way that they constructed the government because they allowed you to change the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and as a result, people, I think about this a lot because there's a version of the world where the second the slaves are free, as many as possible get the fuck out of America. Yeah. Like if you think about it, if I just told you a story about, okay, for 600 years, one group of people is subjugated to the point where their lives are basically meaningless. Mm-hmm. They are property for 600 years. They are straight up property. Eventually, after much fighting, 
there's a law written says that they are no longer yeah. property. Very few of them have the money to actually leave and get away from where they are. But many of the ones who do don't. A few do. A few go back to Africa. Yeah. But very few do. Instead, they fight, and especially in the first eight years after slavery, they mm-hmm. fight to get positions in the very government right. that has been subjugating them right. all along. I'll give you another example. After the uh, Japanese were interned during World War II, again, the second you get out of that camp, what's the first thing you want to do? Get the fuck out of America, mm-hmm. right? And I have to, right? My all my property has been right. stolen right. while I've been in that internment camp. My shop got, like, the white guy next door moved in, mm-hmm. bought it out for pennies on the dollar, yeah. right? Um, no. Not only do many of them enlist in the United States fucking army, they fight to right. be able to yeah. enlist. They fight for the opportunity to die for the country that just imprisoned them unjustly. What the fuck is that? They understood that back door. They understood they believed in the dream of what mm-hmm. America could be, mm-hmm. regardless of how fucked up it had been beforehand. Yeah. And I think, like, even though I don't totally understand it, I have to acknowledge that is a fundamentally human thing. Yeah. That if there's a thing that we believe in, we will fight for it to the death. We believe in the fungibility of the American government. Right. And to a certain degree, it's true. Yeah. The momentum has certainly been in the favor of corporations and wealthy people because they're the ones who can afford to fuck with it the most. But every now and then, it fucks back. Yeah, see, and I, I think for me is that particularly with political parties and systems, I don't know, may, maybe it's because I, you know, I have this, uh, I, you know, it to me, it, it, it all comes back to, to Captain America and, you know, the Winter Soldier <laughs> and Civil oh, yeah. War, where, you know, at, you know, at the end of Captain America's Civil War, Steve Rogers, when he writes his letter to Tony Stark, you know, he talks about like, you know, how how he's he's had more faith in people than institutions, because I for me. I do not believe the rhetoric of a lot of the people that are actually operating the American government Mm -hmm. and and even in the Democratic Party. And I honestly don't know if it's just because, like, they really have no idea of the depths of the things that black people have gone through or if they really kind of don't care or if it's just like beyond their their comprehension and so my my thing is is that I really do believe it it's like like I'm like yeah a a lot of these things can actually work if people not just put the money into it but like the the mental oh yeah and emotional investment because cuz I I think like the, the the thing I always say about school reform cuz I'm so I think on one level, if you gave like a trillion dollars to the Philadelphia public school system tomorrow, the the mental warfare and mental genocide that has been waged on black people is so deep that a lot of the money wouldn't really take care of a lot of issues. Like I think it would take care of some issues, but mm-hmm. I don't think it would because like our minds have just been so polluted mm-hmm. by toxic white supremacy that like we're some of us are just beginning to unpack it. But I'm like. But if you're actually going to do reform in terms of pure dollars, it's it's going to take a lot more money. It's like the, so much dirt has been done to us mm-hmm. that whatever amount of money people think it's going to take, it's like it, it could actually take like 15 times more mm-hmm. than that. So that's one thing I think. And then I think ultimately I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people make a lot of empty promises and I'm just sort of like, eh, I I don't have faith in your words and I don't, and I don't want the, I don't want the health of my community to be centered around this thing that you might do, Mm -hmm. but historically speaking, 
the first 10 times you said you were going to do it, you actually didn't do it. Yeah. So why should this 11th time be any different? You know, and I realize that that is a, um, a relatively privileged position that I'm able to take. But it's one of the reasons that I've done the work that I've done in the nonprofit world mm -hmm. and done the type of work in the types of communities that I've done because it's like I I I want to start unlocking those those systems of power because like I yeah I don't, I don't believe Joe Biden or yeah. Warren or Bernie when he says he's gonna, they're going to do any of this stuff because you know. A lot of white liberals have been saying that since the 40s, and mm, they haven't done anything. Or they've done some stuff, but what they've promised has been this big, and what mm. they've actually delivered has been this big. But I, I could be like a super cynical dude, so I don't no, know. No, I don't, I don't know that's necessarily the case. And like, and again, if you look at the record, right? Yeah. Like, I would look at, at these folks' records. Because the thing is, we have very little in the way of proper vetting when it comes to political campaigns. Yeah. Like, debate tells you very little. Yeah. Like, if you were sh sort of think of all the things you would need to do to, because at the end of the day, you're being asked to make a prediction about the future. Yeah. And we are notoriously horrible at making predictions about the future. Absolutely. Right? Um, the information with which you're given to make predictions about the future in a political campaign is fairly scarce, right? And if you were hiring for them for the job, literally one of the things you'd want to do is look at, well, what did you actually do? When you have promised something, how much of it have you been able to deliver? Yeah. And what are the circumstances around what Absolutely. you did or didn't deliver yeah. that stuff? Like, And if you could have that track record for Biden, for Bernie, for Warren, and look at it and compare it, and again, compare it to Trump, because mm -hmm. We are not making a decision in a vacuum. Absolutely. <laughs> there Absolutely. is an alternative. Yeah, there is an alternative. <laughs> which if we do nothing, uh, yeah. I can guarantee you we'll get. Yeah, and, and apparently a, a lot of people don't like too. this Donald Trump guy. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I'm hearing. It's, well, it the, boggles the good, my mind yeah. that there are still people who are undecided. It's the, like, the, how the, can you yeah. not understand what you are going to get <laughs> like at this point but i i feel like so, but you as a systems and a cognitive bias person mm -hmm. should completely un i mean it's it's frightening on a just like pure like uh wanting the world not to blow up and like not have nazis just like running free mm -hmm. in the streets to be able to do what they want you know ob like obviously yeah. but i'm but i'm i'm sure if, like from studying cognitive bias that like you know, it, I mean, it's just, it's the sort of whole, like, uh, you know, what do they call it? Like, you know, the, the, you know, what is it like the, not the time suck principle, but like the, when, when, when you just put so much money and effort into a thing, you're like, oh, oh sunk cost fallacy. You know, yeah, I, I exactly. get people, I get people who want to vote for him again. Again. That's the most likely outcome. Yeah. There's some cost fallacy, but then there's also something called post-purchase rationalization. Absolutely. If you spend yes. a lot of money on something, yes. whether it was actually good or not, you're going to say it was awesome. You're going right? to, yeah, and you're going to double down. Most people mm -hmm. who vote for someone will vote for them again. Yes. Um, if anything, what you're going to see is him getting basically, you know, the same turnout, but slightly less because whenever you have an incumbent, fewer people are going to vote because they just sort of accept it's the status quo and there's sure. nothing they need to do yeah. to keep it going. Um, that's the most likely outcome for Trump's numbers. Um, he still has like 90% approval rating yeah. you know, among Republicans. Oh, yeah, 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 right? absolutely. Um, so, but it's it's the people who are undecided. That's gotcha. the part that gotcha. I'm like, how, do you, how have you not made up your mind? Right. How is it not clear to you what's going to happen right. one way or the other, right? There couldn't be more, you know, black and white. Like, yeah. <laughs> literally, like what you were going to get. Like, if Trump was an unknown and it was sort of like, sure. okay, he's yeah. been boisterous during the campaign, but he'll settle down when he becomes president, which is what a lot of people thought. 
Um, okay, I get that, and you're still undecided, but it's like you know what you're getting. Yeah, at, you know what right? you're getting. You've with seen him. the fucking trailer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not, you just see, you've seen the movie. Yeah. Do you want a sequel? Like you know, and th- so that's and it's like no matter who is on the Democrat side at this point, you know it's going to be different than that. Right. <laughs> Degrees of difference, sure. And we can, you know, but but that that's the part that kind of boggles my mind. Where it's like, how are you not sure at this yeah. point? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Well, let's, so let, let's do a, a nice segue out of the, um, you know, our possibly tense not, <laughs> not even tense I, I i feel like the the, the political discourse like yeah, we're, it, dealing, we're dealing with some deep issues yeah like, and and and, and to, to be clear like i do a whole thing in my um uh talk about cognitive bias and design where i talk about how um there are if something if something rhymes we believe it more and if something is um easier to read mm-hmm. we believe it more yeah um and like that's you know it's a little scary but it can be used for good purposes and the example i give is um African-Americans generally do not believe health information that comes from the government. Right, If yeah. you were to ask, back in 2012, um, or maybe it was even 2000, maybe it was earlier than that, but like you asked, uh, the government generally tells the truth about health information like HIV, AIDS. Only 36% of black respondents said yes. By the time you get to 2016, that drops to 18%. Sure. yeah. Less than one in five African-Americans yeah. think that the, health, that the government is telling the truth about AIDS. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. The government is telling the truth about AIDS. It is, AIDS. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, if you don't believe it, you will die. Right. <laughs> so, there's an imperative to, like, and that's the context. It's like, okay, if this shit needs to rhyme to be more believable, we need to consider that option because right. people are about right. to die here. But whenever I give that talk, I say, by the way, I could give a whole other talk on why there are legit reasons exactly. yeah. that African Americans have one in five, like, mm-hmm. belief around that stuff. Yeah. Like, that's not a coincidence. Right. Shit went down. Yes. And there's a totally legit reason for that so that i am sympathetic to um and 100 percent am down with the idea of yeah you should be fucking suspicious of the if you're an african-american if you are a woman if you are basically if you're not a rich white dude you should be a hundred percent suspicious of anything the government wants to do because historically on the whole probabilistically they have fucked you yeah so i'm totally down with that i'm more of the mindset of okay well what do we do absolutely yeah. <laughs> right yeah how, how, how do we how do we actually operate exactly in, you know, in the world that we in, have in a productive way in, yeah right? in, a, in a productive way yeah and yeah and i and yeah you know i mean since it's my podcast i get to monopolize it <laughs> yeah. no is that yeah i'm i i think it's that yeah i'm i'm not suspicious i'm just i'm i am i am skeptical on them e- even with just like with stuff that they like really really want to do but it's like we're a huge country. I mean, we're like 300 yeah. million people and like, you know, black folk are 35 million, you know, and, you know, and our, our history in this country is just so unique that like, I, I have yet to meet a single white person who like, who gets it. And it's like, I also understand because most of y'all are coming from environments where you like, you meet two black people a year and you don't have deep conversations. And yes. it's, it's like our, our, our cultural history is so unique that like, I, I don't expect you to get it. Yeah, No one in your family has ever been property. Yeah. Yeah. So like you, 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 you can't understand that. And so a, a lot of the proposals that come out of that, like not getting it, it's like, ah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm just, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm skeptical on people being able to deliver what they sure. say. Um, uh, all right. So, Something that I am curious about with the with the work that you make is it air quotes black in the sense of and again one of the points I was like trying to make is that you know 
I I get very dismayed when people talk about like, well, is this a black film or not? Because like, because <laughs> for for me, black art is art made by black people. Mm-hmm. So. For me, if you made a film about the Marquis de Sade or George Washington or, I don't know, if you directed a biopic on Fiona Apple, I'd be mm. like, well, that's that's a black film because it's made by a black person. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, like, black film doesn't mean it has a hip-hop soundtrack <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Um, but something I'm just curious about in general is... When, when you're making films, and particularly with action films, is it important that there are some black people in them? Mm-hmm. Is it important that like the entire cast is black? Or is it, or are you just sort of like, I'm going to just like write a script and the, the, this film isn't necessarily any different if it's the lead is Jamaican or mm-hmm. Ugandan or African American or French, like, how how does how does uh race consciousness exist in your films or does it uh that has changed over time so when i uh so you got that list of like 160 movies right i want yeah. to make and there was a time when as i was building out that list and this goes back to that first novella i wrote when i was in high school um my default in my head of who those characters were going to be this was like a sci-fi epic the characters in my mind, um, and, and in my head, the story was basically like a James Bond meets Miami Vice 2,000 years in the future. Right? Okay, nice. Um, both mostly white franchises, by the way. Sure. So um, in my head, Kevin Costner in Silverado is the archetype for the main character I had in my head, and the sidekick was Peter, Peter Scolari on Newhart. Um, both white dudes, right? So also uh, Peter Scolari, who... He was, was his bosom buddy. Yeah, I, I, yeah. okay. I, but he I, plays I, this very nerdy guy on Newhart. Okay, that's kind of who I had in my head for the sidekick. Oh, so what's um, what? So what's funny is, so when you said Newhart, for some reason, my mind went to Heart to Heart with like oh, Robert which Wagner was, which or was? whatever. I, I used to watch Heart to Heart. I was yeah, into that. So I, was, I so I'm, I'm like heart. Peter Scolari was on Heart to Heart. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I'm like he's like a goofy comedy guy. Then I'm like oh no. Newhart with Bob Newhart, yeah, which yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I actually saw that. Okay, yeah. Again, awesome. One of the whitest shows ever made, but I, I loved it. Dude, um, my dad freaking loves Bob Newhart. Oh, Bob like, Newhart's amazing. Like, He's amazing. Like he loved the Bob Newhart show. He loved Newhart. Um, anytime Bob Newhart is on The Big Bang Theory, like my dad, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. y- you never see my dad happier. The the episode when after yeah Professor Proton died and he came back and it was like a tribute to Obi Wan Kenobi in mm-hmm. uh, Return of the Jedi. My dad was freaking giddy like a, a school yeah. kid. Yeah, I mean, and my mom loved like to her. I think like any show that Mary Tyler Moore has ever done, like that's her gold mm-hmm. standard sure, for entertainment. Sure. So yeah, my dad. In another world, I think my dad like wants to be Bob Newhart, like mixed with Stephen <laughs> Colbert. Yeah, there's, there's worse uh, things to want to be. Um, so yeah, uh, so those were the archetypes, right? And many of the movies I wanted to make because I'm a very premise-driven director sure. and storyteller. I think of a premise that sounds really cool, then I worry about character. Um, and the main characters were almost always default white dudes. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I think I cast Ewan McGregor in like half of my movies yeah. in the '90s. I was just like, it's gonna be that guy. As I get older and as I, you know, met my wife, who is much more sort of politically conscious about those things mm-hmm. and observant than I am, um, and I sort of started to be, honestly become more of a Democrat because I started out as a Republican, then a Libertarian, then I became a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, I started to become more conscious of the impact, both socially and from a storytelling perspective, of being more diverse in the leads in my films, mm-hmm. right? And um, Alyssa Rosenberg is a writer for the Washington Post, and she does a great job of talking about this, not in terms of just sort of the moral rectitude of diversity, but more in terms of just the storytelling opportunity around diversity, right? So if I tell this story with a female lead rather than a male lead, okay, there's all this storytelling opportunity that's there that's not there if I just go with the same old, like I've seen a white dude kick ass before, right? Right. And fight the government or do whatever before. But there are all these implications and these different subtle things I can do if it's not. So for example, let's take a look at a movie like Black Panther, Mm -hmm. right? Black Panther is essentially a Shakespearean, you know, legitimacy of the royalty kind of thing. Sure, yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. And we've seen that a hundred mm-hmm. times, right? You could tell that same story in Denmark and it's mm-hmm. Hamlet with, you know, vibranium. Mm-hmm. Because... N- that's going to be the name of my uh, next spoken word album. <laughs> ha- Hamlet, Hamlet with vibranium. You heard it here first on the punk rock barbershop. Right? Instead, because... We decide, okay, we're going to tell this story as an Afrofuturist story. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, a very worn premise becomes rich with storytelling opportunity. Because now I can talk about the diaspora. Now Mm -hmm. I can upset and and subvert notions of what it means to be an African. Sure. Right? And the whole shithole country thing. I get to turn Mm -hmm. on its head Mm -hmm. so that, spoiler alert, by the end, it is Africa who is saving America. Right. Not America who is saving Africa. Yeah. That's subversive as yes, fuck. Absolutely. Like I can't even find indie films that are making that kind no, of No, no, not at all. Not right? at all. Uh, but it's well within genre. Mm-hmm. And the only thing honestly I've really changed is who the story is about and who's telling right. the story. The actual story is super fucking trope. Absolutely. And, and, and old. Yeah. Like that's there's nothing new there. But because I've changed the 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 players involved, right, and the the cultural context of those mm-hmm. players, now I've got a whole new story on my hands. Like when pe- whenever people come to me and they're like, um, "Oh, hey, what's the hot new trend in tech?" I'm I'm saying it's it's not the technology; it's who gets to handle the technology. Yeah, yeah. That's what's new. Yeah. When you give the same old tools to new people mm-hmm. who've never gotten to use them before, that's when you get new shit. Yeah. That's when you get artistic revolutions, right? When turntables suddenly become available to. Um, uh, kids in New York City because there was a blackout and so yeah. everybody has yeah. a good turntable. Guess what? You get huge fucking boost in hip hop. Yeah. Right? Because people get access to tools that they didn't have access to before, right? And they make new shit. Um as opposed to the old people who had access before and they just played records on them. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what excites me. And so over time I got to the point where I'm like, now when I look at story ideas, I ask myself, unless there is a good story reason to make this protagonist a white man, right. I'm probably not going to do it. No. Okay. So that so that this is su- super 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 interesting. So for you, are you more focused on in not having it be a white man? Do the characters automatically become black, or do they automatically become non-white? So they could be Latinx, they could be Asian, they could be like Sri Lankan. Generally, I'm favoring women of color. Okay. And again, part of that is, so there's a part of it that's about storytelling, but there's a part of it that's about who who did I see on screen mm-hmm. growing up and mm-hmm. how did that influence me? Mm-hmm. And what would have been different if I had seen women of color in sure. the same position? Sure, sure, Would I treat them better now? Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would other people treat them oh, better yeah, now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean? So yeah. I'm thinking about that as well. Now, and so, and I and I apologize if I'm being like, if we're engaging in semantics or not, to... So 
when you're when you're saying women of color, mm-hmm. does that mean that it like it could be African American women or continental African women or mm-hmm. um Dominican women who don't necessarily have overt or discernible African ancestry, but like, you mm-hmm. know, they have indigenous Caribbean ancestry. So like part of the reason why I'm asking mm-hmm. is because like it, at least in California growing up, mm-hmm. I had a bit of a culture shock when I moved to the East Coast because so this is just my experience and it might have just only been my experience. But when I was coming up in Southern California, the perception that at least existed in amongst the friends that I had and in my house was that black folk were black folk. Latinx folk were Mexican folk. Like, you know, we didn't, there was not a discernible Puerto Rican or Dominican community in Southern California at that time. And so their, their intersectionality was not talked about or practiced between those two communities. So coming to the East coast and hearing African American folk, and Latinx folk, regardless of their melanin, mm-hmm. operate in a spirit of brotherhood and like live in the same communities and use a lot of like the same slang and cultural colloquialisms for each other was kind of a mind boggling thing. Because mm. I'm, I'm like, we, that's not how it, it goes down with with the, the the black folk and the Spanish speaking folk in Southern California. And so so it it honestly took me a long time to even get comfortable with the phrase like people of color, because mm. I'm just sort of like. Huh? Because like, you know, like I because I know some, you know, Puerto Rican folk who are like of German descent. And, you know, I, I mean, and, you know, my I've talked about this many times on the podcast, like, you know, the only two grandparents I knew, I thought they were white until I was like 14 because they were so light skinned. Mm-hmm. So um, but yeah, but but when you say is women of color just a way for you saying black women or do you actually mean women of color oh, not mean, necessarily black yeah, but... yeah yeah i mean women of color in terms of like not white it's a nice way of saying uh not white okay but it, it <laughs> oh could God. be asian it could be it could be of arab descent yeah, yeah, yeah. it could Absolutely. be yeah from i'll, the I'll, Indian I'll give you one better right because even then i'm being cis right i'm saying really what i'm thinking of is who have i not seen in this sure, position i got before, you i got you right okay who have i not seen who have i not seen be a spy before right if i'm right, writing a right, spy movie right um, and again, you can think of that in terms of social justice, which I yeah. think is totally legit. And you can yeah. also think of it in terms of storytelling opportunity, which I think is totally legit. Yeah. I am bored with seeing white male spies. Give me something else. Yeah. Now, do you personally... What kind of um, thinking beyond like terms of big picture macro equity and what could be interesting as far as images and just the thoughts that come behind it but like just in your soul of like what you straight up like want to generate Mm -hmm. do you really do you primarily want to put black people on the screen or are or is your focus like not having white people does that Uh, make sense what i'm saying more the form i mean really what i'm thinking about and and again thinking about more consciously now than i used to because i'm still a very premise driven director I'm thinking a lot about what can that premise say about a topic that we haven't really explored well okay. in this genre. So, for example, I am super interested now in telling stories about class and how mm-hmm. to use genre to do that. So we were talking before about Bong Joon-ho. So his latest movie, Parasite, yeah. is sl- half satire, half Hitchcockian thriller, but very much about class. Okay, And that's not really something Hitchcock talked a lot about, right? right? Um, if you look at his other work, The Host is basically a traditional monster movie, but class plays a very strong role gotcha, in that. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. Snowpiercer is a post-apocalyptic thriller completely about class. Yeah. 
right? Um, and I feel like there's great storytelling opportunity there to tell these stories um, about issues that we, especially in the States, we really shy away from right. and we're not comfortable right. with telling stories about unless they're specifically yeah. about that. If you're going to tell a story about poverty, it has to be about poverty. The genre is a drama and it's going to be up for an Oscar, yeah. right? Versus, oh no, this is a story about vampires, but really when you look at it, it's a really you know powerful statement about class yeah. and meant to start discussions about class, right? Yeah. Like that... That interests me, taking genre and subverting it and using it to tell stories about things that we are, you know, not comfortable or don't even, I won't even say uncomfortable, don't have the language to articulate. I'll give you a perfect example. If you watch Jessica Jones, the first Mm -hmm. season of Jessica Jones is a fantastic deconstruction of sexuality, of, of gender relations. And if you have watched that and you then enter into a discussion about, hey, it was weird and a little creepy that... We kept asking Hillary Clinton to smile, and we didn't ask Trump to smile, even though he notoriously never smiles. Right, yeah. Um, Why is that weird? It's a lot easier, curiously, to have that conversation if you've both seen Jessica Jones. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's the space I want to play in. Like, I want to enable these conversations in a way where I'm still playing with, like, Jessica Jones, even if you don't think about any of that, is a fantastic ride. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, it's such a great, think of it purely in terms of the dynamics of a thriller or the dynamics of a comic book movie or comic book TV show. It works, but it's doing all this extra work. Right. Yeah. And that's the space I want to play in where I'm producing fantastic genre work. Sure. But I'm also, Henry Jenkins calls it a cultural activator. I'm creating something that makes people really mm-hmm. gives them gives them a framework in which to act. Sure. Yeah. And one of the things that I find I find interesting, and I, and I want to see how this plays out in in the world is that. Um, I feel like that type of work I don't know if people understand like the cultural force that that those things have. I mean like you know because what 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 you're really ta- what it sounds to me like you're talking about is like you know what something like Jessica Jones is able to do is that so first and foremost it's it's compelling drama and action and like you know it's entertainment. So like you said, if you sort of just watch it just for like the cool story and shit blowing up and her kicking ass and that's all you take away from it like it works. Yeah. Um but then when you really go deeper and it can it can in a air quote safe way sort of um, unpack all of these gender dynamics that asking people to, you know, if you ask someone, OK, so like wh- why is it that Hillary Clinton is being asked to smile and Trump isn't or Barack Obama is talked to people talk about how articulate he is. <laughs> and that is literally never said about any other white candidate yeah. ever. The, those things make people very uncomfortable for all the reasons that we know. But when we have something in the world of entertainment where it's like, well, this kind of opens up the conduit to like talk about these deeper issues, you know, like, you know, you know, very much, you know, Black Panther is a great example of it where it's really um, hopefully forcing people to think about like, okay, so like, was it jarring or not to see the Dora Milaje? Like, you know, it's it's an all-female fighting mm-hmm. force who are who are the guardians of this king. Like, what feelings did that bring up? What feelings did it bring up that really, aside from T'Challa, like the the main sort of keepers of the culture of Wakanda are the women. Like Shuri is the science expert, oh, yeah. you know, and that is a big deal because um 
you know, it's it's sort of like the thing in like, you know, American politics of like, yeah, the black person always gets the job as the HUD secretary or maybe the education sector. You get the black stuff, uh-huh. but you know, but like, you get the black stuff. I I would be curious to see oh, how America would react to a black defense secretary or a black CIA director, especially if it yeah. was a black woman. Well, we well we did ironically under Bush, we did have that. Um, um, Condoleezza Rice. Oh yeah. Well, um, well, she was Secretary of State. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. True. That's true. Yeah. But but you're right. You're right. And I and I think that I mean, along those same lines. Like part of it is I have a keen familiarity with patterns and how yeah. pattern recognition works. So if you see something more and more and more, you see it, the more acceptable it will become to you. So that's why I want the Dora Milaje there, right? And if you think about a lot, I think a lot about how Shuri is a black nerd, a yeah. black female nerd. Absolutely. How many of those do we have right. in cinema? I yeah. can name one, <laughs> Shuri. Yeah. And if you imagine some little black girl who is very smart and isn't afraid to show it, Right, and she starts to get teased because I have no pattern for that. I don't. Right. I don't we, we tease the things we don't recognize. Absolutely, don't like, right? absolutely. But all of a sudden, it's like, oh no, she's a little Shuri. Yeah, right. That's powerful now. Absolutely, right. That's playground powerful. Mm-hmm. Playground powerful is powerful. Yeah, like, that sets up shit that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. So that's part of what I think about when I think about, oh, okay, I could put a white dude in that role, but if I put a black girl in that role, right. like a little black girl playing this thing. When any little black girl is put in that position, mm-hmm. she has this mm-hmm. to point to now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it makes a difference. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I love it. And also, you know, I mean, and, you know, we, you know, we don't have uh, necessarily time to get into this now because I want to be conscious of your time. You know, and we, we got sidetracked by my, you know, uh, <laughs> two hour rant as to why I'm, you know, I, I have no faith in any institution ever. You know, I'm trying, I'm trying not to be so cynical, but, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, um, but one of the things I'm I'm really curious about to see in the world of sci-fi and action is so I really want to just see like a lot of overtly black science fiction and action mm-hmm. and people can interpret that any way that they sure. want because like one of the things I've I've said is that to me. Afrofuturism is a part of black science fiction, but they are not the same thing. Sure. And I think that there are some people whose minds think that black science fiction is Afrofuturism. And it's like, no, they intersect, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Because because I, I would love to see a, a black science fiction movie that doesn't shy away from black consciousness and doesn't shy away from the continent of Africa, but the... The 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 one thing that I felt about Black Panther, where I was sort of like, okay, this this I'm kind of having a hard time with this, is so Spider Man into the Spider Verse mm-hmm. resonated more for me on a cultural level than Black Panther did because Miles Morales to me is a more accessible character. Oh sure, because it's because and like this this is a joke I always make is that I feel like anytime you have non Africans doing a quote unquote African dialect in a movie, it just I feel like it sounds just more regal because you're not used to it. And I feel like Chadwick Boseman was doing a, it's like, you're doing a Nelson Mandela accent. Mm-hmm. So any t- like Nelson Mandela could tell someone to go, I mean, not now cause he's not alive, but like if Mel- Nelson Mandela told someone to go fuck themselves, I'd be like, wow, that was like the most spiritually enriching time <laughs> because I don't know. Just like, I, I think that they're, there is a very understandable sort of like mysticism mm-hmm. for black Americans around Africa where like everything just seems so much more regal and special. And so I feel like Black Panther 
really played into that. And that's not a bad thing, but you know, but it's like everyone's in robes and mm-hmm. like, it's like, there's gotta be an asshole in Wakanda. Like there's gotta just like be some dude who's running like check cashing scams <laughs> and just kind of being like a, like kind of a dick or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you didn't really see that. And for me, Killmonger was the character that I related to the most, not even necessarily in terms of his politics, although a lot of his politics I didn't disagree with, mm-hmm. honestly. It yeah. was really his application of them. Sure. But but I'm like, oh, well, I know dudes who dress and talk like that yeah. and and who feel that way. And, like, and I know like a lot of dudes who can tell you everything about every culture in Africa, but like they still wear like, a sweatshirt and sneakers. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, like he wears a sweatshirt and sneakers and he lives in an apartment as opposed to T'Challa who has like this palace and is always yeah, wearing and that's, robes. that's the whole point. Yeah. Like that, that's the entire, that's Killmonger's entire point. The movie begins with, and if you find out, you find out later, it's like two voices, a father and a son yeah. talking. It's Killmonger's it's Killmong- father yeah, and yeah. Killmonger and the last lines right before we get into the movie after um, his father has told the story of Wakanda and how they're hidden and it's, he's asking, the son asks, you know, are they, are they still hidden today? And the father says yes. And the, the son says, why? Yeah. And that's the last line, right? And that's Killmonger's whole point is that you are on an ivory tower. You are mm-hmm. inaccessible, right? And he's right. That's what makes him such a powerful villain. He's yeah. right. They are inaccessible. Yeah. And the whole end of the movie is them saying, okay, we are now going to become accessible. We're right. going to reveal ourselves literally to the world. Yeah. So I think your reaction is exactly the reaction mm-hmm. you're supposed to have. Yeah. It's like, Killmonger was right. His right. his methods were, you know, extreme and informed by his trauma. Yeah. But uh, but the fundamental thing he was trying to solve is exactly the same thing that Nakia, by the way. Yeah. She has the exact mm-hmm. same argument, mm-hmm. and she's probably the second most relatable. Right. She doesn't have the sort of highfalutin, right? She goes out in the world, and she's seen the world, too, and wants things to change. Um, going back to that, you know, the owners of the, the cultural conversation. I would argue they do have the asshole, and it's, um, what's his name from Get Out? Who oh, yeah, yeah. The Borderland tribe. I think yeah. he's the one doing, he's not doing check cashing, but he's sort right. of like the, like, fuck refugees, but if you want us to go fuck, fuck someplace over, I'd be happy to. Yeah, like, absolutely. He's the asshole absolutely. in the check cashing place yeah. in Wakanda. Yes, that's <laughs> but no, true. But I, but, I think that, but I think that's very apt, and going back to the conversation about race, because I did actually listen to your episode about, um, uh, into the Spider-Verse. Okay, I, I yeah. totally agree 100%. I fucking love that movie. But that's more of a, like, if Wakanda is, like, the future we want, you know, Into the Spider-Verse is, the, like, the present we have, Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and, again, if you think about class, like, um, they did the math once, and uh, T'Challa is the richest person in Marvel. Like, mm, mm-hmm, if you yeah. actually take the value of Vibranium sure. and think about how much they probably have, it's... He's like a trillionaire many times over. Yeah. Like he's far richer than Tony Stark or any of those other people. So it's like, in terms of class, he's like the highest of the high. So you're not going to be able to relate to him that way. Whereas like Miles Morales, I mean, I think all of us grew up with more or less the same amount of wealth. His dad's mm-hmm. a public servant. Yeah. Right? Like he's not rich. He's going to a pretty good school, but he's not rich. Right? He's getting by right. like everybody else. Yeah. He's tagging street. You know, he's yeah. like, he's very much in that. He's very, he's someone you could meet. Exactly. Minus the spider, he is someone exactly. you could meet. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I think also the other thing for me, um, and this is kind of coupled with the fact that just Friday night, yeah, I think it was Friday, they did a thing on ABC where it was called Celebrating Stan Lee. Mm. Um, and so they, you know, they had different people from the MCU talk and they sort of talked about like his career. But one of the things that they were talking about was how Stan Lee in collaboration, I guess, with Jack Kirby and some of the other people, they were consciously trying to break away from the DC mold of, oh, Batman lives in Gotham, a fictional place. Superman lives in Metropolis, where it's like, 
Doctor Strange has an apartment in Manhattan. The Fantastic Four, like, they live in New York. Yeah, so you can Ca- literally go to the address. I've seen the map. Yeah. Like the Marvel map yeah. of New York. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that like, and that's why, for me, the the Winter Soldier, one, because the just the whole, like, political intrigue three days of the Condor, oh, yeah. like, I don't know who to trust thing. It's one, just, I feel like that's the moment that, like, we're living in now. Too like as a black person, I'm like, yeah, because I don't know what the fuck to believe. And, and so I, the the yeah. sort of Manchurian candidate thing that I want to talk to you about, and we can talk about this deeply when we stop recording, is sure. like I I kind of want to make like an Afrocentric Winter Soldier mm-hmm. because at least for me as a black person, um, like I I kind of want to make a movie about how like. Cornell West or Henry Louis Gates is a, is really a Manchurian candidate sent to subvert black people because uh-huh. I don't literally think right, that right, right, right. but I've been in enough conversations with people where people like will like love someone so I like I make this joke where my wife and I not more me than her we may be the only two people that we know of in our group of friends who are not pardon my expression not creaming our jeans at the prospect of a bernie sanders presidency (laughs) like for me i'm like fuck that nonsense except on foreign policy you know dismantle the perpetual warfare state i'm with you bernie Mm -hmm. but most of his stuff i'm like i no i can't i can't get behind it but like literally almost anytime i'm at a dinner party it's almost just like so mike are you on a scale of one to ten? How do you feel about a Bernie Sanders candidacy? A billion or five billion? <laughs> and like, I kind of keep quiet because I don't want to get yelled at from my politics. Yeah. And, and but it's like, and I'm just like, and it's not even that like, I think that like people are like deluded or drinking the Kool Aid when it comes to him mm-hmm. or whatever. But I'm just like, I'm like, I, I feel like I'm in a fucking twilight zone, mm-hmm. and I I just feel that way about like so many things that as it relates to life as a black person mm-hmm. where I've always been this way as a kid where, where it's just like this, this thing that people sort of hold up as like, this is the best of the culture. I'm like, I actually think this is where a lot of our problems come from. And it's like, and I'm not trying to be contrarian mm-hmm. or, or be a rabble rouser, but it's just like, my parents raised me to think independently. It's like, and I, I do my research on the things. Sure. So, so the whole winter soldier vibe, I'm just like, yeah. Cause every yeah. day I just feel like I'm like, I, I'm losing my mind or I don't know what's going on, but I also, um, yeah, this relates to like the accessibility of Marvel characters. The other thing I love about that movie is that like 95% of it, it's captain America, just like walking around and like, in sweats, yeah. you know, in a fleece jacket. You literally, like, see his... It's like, he has a key to get into his apartment. Like, he still uses a record player. It's, yeah, yeah. It's so accessible, which is what I love about it. Have so. you watched Luke Cage? Uh, first season, okay. I did. And then, uh, yeah, my life got crazy during the second season. Oh, but second, like, second season is even better. But, okay. But but what's amazing, so they have a... I don't know if it's still there, but the Franklin Institute, they had a superheroes... Uh, right, I rem- I never saw it, but I remember So one it. of the just absolutely just amazing things about it is they have Luke Cage's hoodie. Yeah! And with the bullet holes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that... I mean, you want to talk about accessible, right? Just the idea... And again, this is a this is one of those like because it is a black man, mm-hmm. him being bulletproof has so much more story potential, absolutely, and resonance mm-hmm. than if he were especially really anyone else. As, uh, yeah, as, <laughs> right? as, especially in the world Even that we're a black living in today, woman, it would yeah. not have the same yeah. resonance, right? So, a bulletproof black man 
is just an audacious, subversive idea. Yeah. And the fact that it's a hoodie, and you've seen season one, so you know that wearing the hoodie yeah. becomes an actual cultural statement, yeah. plot point, when they're looking for his ass, right, is so, so powerful. Absolutely. Right? If you think about Trayvon, right, that Absolutely. becomes a deep, deep political Absolutely. statement. Absolutely. But couched in the genreist, it's like he's a bulletproof mm-hmm. black guy who's yeah. like got super strength. Like that's yeah. pretty much standard fare, tropey, you know, um, comic book goodness, but because it's a bulletproof black man wearing right. a hoodie in the right. hood, it has all this power yeah. that you just, you, there's no way, there's no other way to get there. Absolutely. And that, that to me is like the most accessible, like political, like yeah. Marvel, like superhero, like in that, in that sense. Yeah. And, and I, and I mentioned this, you, you may remember this when, when I did my thing on into the spider verse where like, I, I loved how prominent the hoodie was oh, yeah. for miles. And I remember, cause when I first saw it, I was watching it and there was this sort of like light bulb moment where I'm watching it because I really didn't know what the movie was going to be about. And again, like I don't really know the comic books that well. So I knew of the Miles Morales character. My wife had told me about it. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to go see it because it's the Miles Morales Spider-Man. Like sure. that was, and and I'm, and then when I heard a little bit about the, like, oh, it's going to be the, all the different spider people from the different universes. I'm like, that that's cool. But there was a certain point where I was watching it and I'm like, I'm like, I, I think they're going there with this. And I was like, no, yeah, I, I'm not just projecting onto this. Like, they're making these intentional choices. I mean, and when I don't think it's a coincidence that his uncle doesn't get shot until he puts his hands yep, up. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and I, <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah, finally. And I really love the fact that it wasn't like, oh, now that you're Spider-Man, the hoodie is jettisoned because that's what the, it's like. No, like, fuck you. For the Geraldo Rivera's out there, yeah, yeah. black parents, <laughs> don't let your kids wear a hood. No, Geraldo, because I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King wasn't get, wearing a hoodie yeah. when cops fucking beat him up. And in yeah. fact, it was the fact that he was wearing a suit yeah. that made the white authorities even that much more nervous. So s- stop with that. But yeah, I mean, all of that, the fact that the spider logo, it's done in graffiti writing, the fact that his sneakers are so prominent. And again, he doesn't jettison these things when he becomes the hero he actually embraces yes, them that and that to me is the difference between those two visions of racial harmony right? yeah. there's one version we were talking about before where it's all about assimilation yeah. and he would have gotten rid of the hoodie in that yeah. version and all the spider-men would look exactly the same ultimately yeah the other end of the spectrum is no celebrate your difference through this character yeah. and that's the direction yeah. they went which i love i love it i love it um, well, all right. So we should probably wrap up because yeah, we've 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 talked about a lot. Like, yeah, this was a good conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was deep, man. Yeah, and you know, and and I'm very happy that you know, as I as I shared, you know, an inkling of my political philosophy. You know, you didn't just you know completely write me off and 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 walk out of my house. So I thank you for that. Oh no, fine, man. Yeah. Um. So. What type of I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to like you know tie everything together um what is a story that if you had like a if money were no object and you could literally if you could make any film that you wanted uh-huh. what like what would that story be like you know of the 160 films you know ideas that you have in TV shows and yeah. there's the one where it's like, Oh, this could actually cost a hundred million dollars to do. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. What's, 
if you could only do one or or right right now and this answer will probably change from yeah. day to day but in, in light of the discussion we just had so i've had an idea for a while now and i'm gonna ask all your listeners to, to sign a friend nda although part of me is like if someone else can make this great but um but i i want to make it um <laughs> so when um uh childish gambino's this is america came out mm-hmm. and i was listening to it and listening to it nonstop. um a trailer started to form in my head and I knew the title had to be Once Upon a Time in Black America. And the premise of Once Upon a Time in Black America is you have a black man he's born in slavery times and he just stays alive. Like mm, okay. Unnaturally long yeah. into present day. And the story is jumping back and forth in time and just following his life. And at the same time, there's a white slave owner who's also sort of born in slavery times and again, just stays alive. He's immortal. And we never really find out why these two particular people are immortal. They just are. It's a bit of magical realism. And what we observe over time is that the white dude's able to sort of accumulate vast amounts of wealth simply by virtue of being alive for so long. The black man, on the other hand, can never hold on to his wealth. And sort of the system finds ways to subjugate him. So he lives through slavery. He lives through Jim Crow. He lives through mass incarceration, like all of these different scenarios, right? Um... And ultimately, and here's the, uh, the, the big twist. So if you want to see this movie someday and don't want to know the plot point, you know, stop listening now. But where I really want this to go is we get to sort of the denouement and our, you know, white slave owner is now, you know, about to become president of the United States, be the most powerful person on earth. And our black dude has, you know, suffered misfortune after misfortune and is sort of rise and fall, rise and fall. But the whole time he's been plotting something, the whole time. Even ever since he was a slave, he's been plotting something. And again, here's where the magical realism comes in. But he has sort of, you know, a spell or a thing or a button he can push. So when the time finally comes, he sort of gives the guy a choice to sort of like, you know, you know, renounce or, you know, face the consequences. Um, the consequences are he presses, basically presses a button and essentially everything in America that was built by slaves disappears. Mm. And it is a massive terrorist attack like think about it yeah right off the bat half of the washington monument just Mm -hmm. disappears Mm -hmm. and the other half just comes crashing down but you can think about that architecturally you can think about that financially but the point he's making in no uncertain terms is you do not have this country without slavery Mm -hmm. and if you were to take that out of the equation everything falls apart it is truly a mass disaster Especially for the, you know, half of the country from the East Coast on to about the Mississippi. It just literally falls apart. That's so, the movie I want to make. <laughs> so I am so glad that you said that. Yeah, well, we'll, 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 when we record, when we finish recording, yeah, I've, I want to see that movie yeah. happen because... I want to see a more um, diverse array of black films, not just in the sense of like, you know, I'm kind of tired of seeing civil rights dramas and like, you know, I'm tired of seeing movies that only take place in like 1950 or like, you know, 1863 or something. It's like, man, there is a black modern life. However, I also want to see when when we... um, when we do films about the really 
brutally ugly parts of the American history, I feel like it's kind of the same tropes over and over again, which are not untrue, but I don't think that they're adding something to the canon of cinema, and I don't think that they are adding something um, to our understanding of our history and how do we, what's the game plan for moving forward, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Because for instance, I hope it does well, but the, I don't know if you've seen the trailers for the new movie with like Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan. Oh yeah, Just Mercy. Yeah, and I'm like, we get a lot of movies like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we get a lot of, an injustice has been done to this black person. And it's like, and it's based on a true story and like I don't want to minimize that, but it's like we we keep kind of doing that same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But like with something that like you're talking about, like it's it's epic, it it talks about some of the same things like in a new way. It goes, you know, you're yeah, I mean you're talking about this magical realism of like, yeah, like this guy who like is like literally living for like hundreds of years. It's like Yeah. So Everything that you said, I I think is is freaking powerful. Like, and I I sincerely hope that you are able to secure the the financial backing to bring that project to fruition. Because yeah, I think that I think that could be super revolutionary. Like, and I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Cool. So, and I yeah, I appreciate you uh, sharing that yeah. with me. And, you know, the, the good news is that, like I said, only seven people listen yeah, exactly. to this podcast, so no one's going to steal your idea. <laughs> but if any of you seven people have a million dollars or a hundred million dollars you want to invest, uh, now's the time. Please do. Please do. Um, all right. So, David, do you prefer Dave or David? Uh, Dave. Okay. Dave, uh, I appreciate you coming here. I appreciate you uh, appreciate you taking time uh, during this holiday season yeah. to sit and chat with me. Uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, this was not a completely uh, laborious, uh, horrible experience no, it's fascinating. for you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so if people, how can people check out the work that you've done thus far? So you want to go to daviddillonthomas.com and or follow me on Twitter at movie underscore pundit, P-U-N-D-I-T. Excellent. Um, And final question, if there was, if there are any words of advice or sort of nuggets of insight that uh, you would want to give to the young people out there, particularly, uh, you know, any any black youth that are coming up, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, that might be listening to this podcast. What would you want to say to them? So uh, it's interesting you catch it that way because the the advice I give to everybody is the best best advice I ever got. But I always, when I'm giving, and you'll see why in a second. When I'm giving this advice to people who have been historically underrepresented, I couch a little bit. But the advice is this: um, it is uh, impossible to listen and react at the same time. And what I mean by that, and this is the advice I got from Alex Hillman way back when, uh, and it still resonates with me today. And the idea is that, like, let's say we're talking at a party, you're telling me some kind of story, and I'm like, oh, I've got a great story about that. And as soon as I start thinking about telling that story and waiting my turn to speak, I've stopped listening to mm-hmm. you, right? And I don't hear half of what you said, yeah, right? Um, and it's better to listen. The world goes better if you actually listen, because now I actually hear everything you say, and I 
actively try to listen to people when I listen to them. And people generally like you more because you're probably the first person to sure. actually listen to them all day. And you also learn more because you're actually listening, right? Um, it's like a superpower in so many ways to be able to develop that. It's m many, if not all things go better if you do that. Now, the reason I am careful about that though, when I'm thinking in terms of people who are marginalized, people who've been marginalized generally don't have a choice, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, I'm very sort of careful in saying that it's like, be intentional when you're listening. Mm, I think is, is mm -hmm. how I would sort of couch that mm -hmm. thing for like understand when you're listening because you actually want to learn something and you actually want to help somebody out versus when you're listening because you have to. Yeah. There is a difference when you are in certain groups and certain sure. contexts and I want to be sensitive to that. So with that caveat, just be aware that you can't listen and react at the same time. Yeah. Um, that has, that has gotten me further than I think any other particular piece of advice that I've ever gotten. Excellent. I appreciate that. Uh, all right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Punk Rock Barbershop, a podcast so unique it just might be offensive. And I feel like, uh, you know, I feel like I at least offended a lot of people <laughs> of the seven people listening today. I feel like I've offended uh, at least three of you. So mission accomplished on that one. Uh, but yeah, all joking aside, uh, yeah. This is your host, Michael Robertson-Reed, coming to you, as always, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or as I like to call it, Marion Anderson City. Uh, and as always, on the Punk Rock Barbershop, uh, I hope you find your story and I hope you find your truth. <laughs>